Okay, let's do this. Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. This is episode 79. I'm Sky. I'm Steve, and I am more human than human. So you say. (laughs) (laughs) And joining us tonight is someone who's as regular a guest host on Film 89 as any. He's a filmmaker, a podcasting professional, being one half of the team that produces the brilliant I Don't Get It podcast. And it's also said that he's less human than human and was most certainly grown in a laboratory. It is, of course, Mr. Bill Scurry. Bill, welcome back, sir. I'm very happy to be here. And you can imagine the things that I've seen with these eyes. And just, just so you guys know, I'm uh, coming to you live tonight from the uh, Tan... What is it? The Tanhauser Gates. Uh, or perhaps it's the shoulder of Orion. Uh, but either way, this is one of my favorite movies, and I'm uh, very happy to be here this evening. We were also going to be joined by our very good friend and previous guest host on our huge Back to the Future trilogy episode, and then our Fellowship of the Ring episode last December. But, unfortunately, Adam Rakoff's had a bit of a nasty fall, resulting in an injury that's prevented him from joining us tonight. So, Adam, get well soon, pal. We're all just gutted that you can't be with us tonight. Yeah, man. So, so far this year on the Film 89 podcast, we have given you a couple of huge episodes on some of the most beloved films ever made, and certainly some of our absolute favourites. We've covered Star Wars, and then most recently The Godfather, and on tonight's episode, once again, we're going to be covering yet another film that's been high on that oft-mentioned list of films that we've been itching to talk about since the podcast began. It's not only one of the most influential science fiction films ever made, It's also one of the greatest films ever made, period. And after The Godfather, it was the one film that you, our listeners, have most requested that we cover out of the list of films that we haven't covered so far. And tonight, we are going to be celebrating its 40th anniversary. It is, of course, Blade Runner. So, gents, Blade Runner. Wow, at last, Steve. We're like well over the four year mark now, and, and this is the 79th episode, and we're finally talking about Blade Runner. And on the anniversary, was it now 40 years? Well, yeah, June 25th, coming up now, it'll, it'll be the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner. And it still feels and looks as fresh as it was released last week. Yeah. I don't know if tonight I'm going to be able to come up with anything like an adequate explanation to describe how I feel about this film, but yeah. It's a special film, isn't it? Indeed. So, gents, um, Blade Runner, obviously based on the short story by Philip K. Dick. Have either of you read that book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? 
Short answer, no, I have not. I have not read any books, so, but I... Sorry, Bill, you've never read any books, full stop. Okay, I read like one or two books, to be fair. But, uh, <laughs> I think Steve Amos has me uh, eclipsed in the book category. Oh, he might, he yeah. might have actually taken this down. He's probably read more books than you and me put together in the last month, Bill, I'd imagine. Yes, yes. I oh, agree. no, I'm only, I'm only on about four or five this last month. Four or five. I've, <laughs> I've read none. <laughs> no books this month. I have read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but it was around, we're talking about 30 years ago now. So don't ask me any details about it. I can't remember. Uh, about five years ago, I did an episode of Wrong Wheel with James Hancock, where we, uh, I think it was, well, it was the 35th anniversary of Blade Runner. And it was just before the release of Blade Runner 2049. So that would, that would have been 2017. And in prep for that, I downloaded a digital copy of Dick's book. And, you know, even the digital version must have been just over, say, say around, I want to say around about 112, 113 pages or thereabouts. And I could not get through it. I, I think I maybe got about 30, 35 pages and it was literally like wading through treacle. It was a lot of stuff about artificial animals and it didn't have anything like, you know, the story that we, we ended up with. I, Again, I can only talk about the small portion of the book I read, but I did not find it easy reading to the point where I just had to give up. I know that may, may sound ridiculous, and surely, you know, I could persevere through such a relatively short book, but I just couldn't. That sounds like the Pierre Bull thing with Planet of the Apes, you know, where the source material barely resembles the finished masterwork on film in, in any way, shape, or form, you know? Yeah. I actually read that last year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, no, I've I've tried a couple of times to read some Philip K. Dick, and he's not the easiest writer at all. You know, I mean, he goes off on all these tangents, and he's you know, I mean, he's more of an ideas man than a novelist, I think. Yeah, and as I said to you guys, and I know Bill, you know, I brought this up quite a bit lately in in a lot of our chat. I just struggle with fiction. I enjoy reading reference books, especially you know, film reference and, and books about filmmaking and about the making of films, but I just cannot. For the life of me, unless there's a strong film connection, digest works of fiction. And I, I think it's something maybe I've picked up in my in my adult life uh, as some sort of like I don't know. It's just something with me. So I am far from being any sort of judge on on whether or not Dick's book is any good. You know, uh, no less uh, an esteemed author than Warren Ellis, who's one of my favorite comic book authors. He would write a lot about Philip K. Dick in his musings, uh, sort of outside the comic book page, but he was definitely influenced by uh, Philip K. Dick. And one of the things he always said, and Warren Ellis is nothing if not a flip commentator about other writers, especially in the sci-fi sphere, is that Philip K. Dick came out of the atmosphere where he was mainlining, you know, amphetamines. Like he was the way they used to do in the 60s. Gene Roddenberry was the same thing. Gene Roddenberry had a, a steady diet of those little pills and cocaine to keep active and keep his mind moving as he was making TV shows. And so he he always said Philip K. Dick was kind of, you know, I think he was being a little rude and saying he's a speed freak, but I think there was something to that. He probably liked the bottle too much, and he definitely enjoyed some speed, some, you know, some amphetamines to get through his day, as any Los Angelino would. So my, my impression was always that Philip K. Dick's fiction would read like that of a speed freak. It maybe is a lot of ideas without a lot of coherence. But I mean, that, again, I'm, I'm relying on another author that I celebrate to sort of cement the impression for me. Yeah, I think he wrote a 8,000-page um, analysis of religion and his thoughts that he had when he was, you know, after, he was tripping badly one day and he had this vision that he was living in the present day and in Rome 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that that, that sounds wrote, rational you know, to me. Yeah, and he wrote 8,000 <laughs> pages on it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, well, talking about then struggling with or, or not really really getting on with, with Dick's book, 
Hampton Fancher was eventually tasked to write the screenplay for Blade Runner. He read To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep and he didn't like it, and neither did Blade Runner's eventual producer, Michael Dealey. But Fancher nevertheless started work on a script which was based on certain things he did like in the book. That initial script was where the voiceover was first conceived, and again, we'll come to that later. But this initial script, it had a focus on the death of animal life on Earth and the pollution that we see in the final film. And the title that they settled on was Dangerous Days. But Fancher didn't like that title. And he says that it was Michael Dealey who eventually came up with the name or the title Blade Runner, which itself was taken from the title of a little scene novella by Alan E. Norse and William Burroughs, which was published in 1979. I think it was called Blade Runner in brackets, a movie. Dealey, he wanted Ridley Scott to direct the film. Scott's older brother Frank had just died of cancer and this had badly affected Scott. But Scott saw the potential in Fancher's script and was... He was on board. The initial budget was $12.5 million. That was put forward by initial distributor Filmways, but they soon folded. Michael Deedy then spoke to Alan Ladd Jr., who is fast becoming something of a recurring name on Film 89. He invested $7.5 million on behalf of Warner Brothers, having made Alien with Ridley Scott for Fox. And then another $7.5 million came from Bud Yorkin and Jerry Parencio, who loved the script and the designs which had been put in front of him. But, and this is something that you, you brought up in a recent conversation, Steve, that... Ridley Scott began asking of Hampton Fancher, you know, what's outside the window? Because Fancher's script apparently was was more compact, more closed in. And Scott, being, you know, a, a very visual director as he is, was more interested in the, the futuristic world outside the apartment in which Fancher's script was mostly set. Yeah, the original script was very much like a chamber piece. Uh, and it was just people in rooms talking and, the, you know, the ideas were there. But Ridley Scott, he wants to know all the detail. He wants to know what what the world is like. He wants to know what the city's like. What what is happening out the window right now? You know that's influencing these people. Yeah, and they think when you you're more focusing on stuff like that than the actual bones of the story, that can obviously be that can cause problems. But I think somehow in in the case of Blade Runner, that that just works to the film's benefit because so much of the final film is based on that fascination that Ridley Scott had with you know this futuristic world and creating the world. And then things apparently between Scott and Fancher had become strained as their ideas conflicted. And then David Peoples was brought in as a replacement writer with Fancher remaining on board as an executive producer. And Peoples changed the ending where apparently Deckard had initially killed Batty in the, in the earlier scripts. Rutger Hauer then later came up with a Tears in the Rain monologue with Peoples' approval. Hampton Fancher now openly accepts that bringing Peoples on board was the right move given what things he brought to the story. Yeah, I think uh, what Ridley Scott wanted was he was focusing on the the hardboiled noir aspects of the um, the story, which I think helped to function. Was it did, uh, Steve? Was it was it Fancher that when he was writing the script, he had Robert Mitchum in mind? Was that Fancher? Or was that Peoples? No, that was um, Fancher. That was yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. then um, it was um, after that Dustin Hoffman was cast. Yeah, Hoffman was actually penned for the role of Yeah, of he was actually involved in the writing as well with Peoples, I believe. If you if you go over, you can actually find storyboards. Yeah, storyboards, the yeah. Yeah, the likeness actually is him. He looks like it's a cross between uh, Straight Time and Serpico, where the actual the character is wearing a wool cap with a yeah. beard. And very, very yeah, much I, I was just thinking mold. of Serpico, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If Dustin Hoffman played Serpico, we would have Deckard. Yeah. Let's talk about the cast then, because... Fancher, you know, he, well, looking at my notes now, I've actually confirmed the question I've just asked. He'd lobbied for Robert Mitchum to play Deckard and, and it had him in mind throughout writing the script. And obviously, like you say, Steve, that transitioned to Dustin Hoffman and then that eventually became Harrison Ford, who was suggested by Barbara Hershey. 
And Ford was in London at the time shooting a, a little-known film called, have I got this right, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> or no, actually, we call it Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> these days. Don't you fucking dare, though. How dare you? That's what it says on my DVD, I'm sorry. Fucking chuck that DVD in the bin. <laughs> But wait, can we talk, talk? We talk for a second about you know Bob Mitchum uh, at this point in his career. I want to say he at least was in his late fifties or mid fifties or something like that. It, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Mitchum, and I even like the work he did throughout the seventies into the eighties. Um, he was on people's the end of people's tongues a lot more frequently than he should have been. I think that there was a lot, even in the seventies there was a dearth of imagination in terms of who you're going to bring on for a lot of noir things, because at one point, I mean, he, he did a Philip Marlowe movie. That's actually a pretty, he actually did. Yeah. Two Philip Marlowe movies. One of them was set in England. I think it was shot in 78. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, Farewell, my lovely. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. And he was in um, the Yakuza, right. For, uh, for Pollock along the way, you know, and it's like, he was kind of too old. And uh, I mean, by the time he gets to Eddie Coyle, it's different, you know, Eddie Coyle, I think is 75, 76. Yeah. Yakuza is, uh, wasn't it? 74. Yeah. Yeah. 74. Right. He's he's too old to be doing these things. I mean, there's one thing about, again, friend friend of Eddie Coyle makes it look, it's, it's more natural. You expect a guy who's so beaten down. But I mean, that's one of a kind in that they were still thinking of Bob Mitchum as like an action star, someone who, who projected young vitality. And I mean, I, I can't think of anything that would have made this movie more pedestrian, uh, unfortunately, if you'd brought Bob Mitchum in. In some ways, this their casting, their dream casting being foiled is was one of the keys to success. But I mean, you know, we'll get to that, you know, we'll get to that in a moment we talk about who actually takes the role well whilst we're on Ford then obviously Harrison Ford you know especially for me and Steve Bill I know this is going to be the case for you growing up before I sort of broadened my horizons with film before I even got into film as a kid my favorite actor was without doubt Harrison Ford because Han Solo and Indiana Jones were the two coolest guys in the universe and you know they were just characters who I just idolized is Rick Deckard up there in terms of, you know, iconic roles? And, and certainly, you know, when you're looking at Ford's career. As, as a kid, Blade Runner, you know, I don't even think, couldn't even tell you if I'd ever seen Blade Runner as a kid. I was always aware of it. You know, looking back now, you know, I do kind of hold this and, and this role and, and this performance and, and, and the film, you know, in the kind of similar regard to that of which I, I do Star Wars and, and the Indiana Jones films. I think the film is, you, you can't understand it as a child. You can't understand what it's about. You might watch it and think, it's this is so dull. Yeah. Because I want action, I want Indiana Jones, I want Han Solo. You know, what this is, I, I have no idea. You know, I don't just... think this is a film that, you know, unless you've got a particularly bright, switched on, very adult kid. You know, I even remember even the first time I saw Blade Runner when I was in my early teens. I, I think it was pretty much lost on me. And this was a kind of film I had to really force myself through and force myself into. And it took... But there was something about it which kept me coming back to it. And I was like, no, I will understand this film. I will like it. I w it will grow on me. And it did. It did. Oh, my God. By the time it really got its claws into me, I was like, I get it now. I, I understand it. But I think as a kid, this would have been totally lost on me. Yeah, how about this? I was going to say that in terms of Ford, again, this is the hindsight of looking at it as an extremely old man who's suffering from leprosy and uh, syphilis. You know, there's only a few instances, you know, we're we're able, we're able to look from a distance at Ford's career and see, well, at the beginning, he was a striving guy who was hungry, but he also had a foot out of the door because he knew he could go back to carpentry. And then there was a brief moment of time throughout the late 70s and most of the mid 80s where he is in the game. And then by the time the 90s roll around, he exhibits a lot of disinterest. So we have this benefit of looking at Blade Runner 
in terms of Harrison Ford's performance as being in the sweet spot of his career. And I mean, I would put this up, even Star Wars aside, because I think he gave maybe maybe one and a half to two great performances throughout the three Star Wars movies that he was in. I think that there are, I would say, three great Harrison Ford performances. I think that you have Witness in there. You have uh, this movie, which I think asks him to do things that no one other, no other directors asked him to do. And then one of my personal favorite Dark Horses, which is my favorite Harrison Ford performance, is the Mosquito Coast for Peter. Oh Peter. yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so that, like that is that's '87. That kind of closes the deal, and that that like heralds the end of him as a, an actor who is interested in, in participating in the creative process, and is instead along for the ride. And I'm not meaning to demean the Fugitive. Or, you know, Clear and Present Danger, anything he did after that. Some of those are fine, fine films. But I don't see the actual actor. I see the movie star, but I don't see the man who's making decisions and thinking and assisting and being directed. And again, maybe that comes from the fact that, you know, there is uh, Harrison Ford working for two directors between Ridley Scott and Peter Weir, who, who their processes are very different from one another. And yet they ask something of their actors that no other director asks, especially Peter Weir who I think, you know, we've discussed in plenty of off-microphone off, uh, chats in terms of the guy's a master. And he's, he's a master for many reasons, but also what he what he gets his actors to do. And so this, this is a, you know, like we're looking at Harrison Ford dealing himself in in the creative process and trying to figure out, you know, you see his intelligence, you see his canny, you see his witness charisma exercised in a way that you don't see even in the other genre work he did around this time. Mm, yeah, and what what I what I don't see in Rick Deckard, I don't see any of that stuff that I was I was familiar with growing up. I don't see Han Solo. I don't see Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? I actually now, knowing as much as I do about the making of the film and, and having watched you know Dangerous Days like three times now over the course of uh, you know the last couple of decades, is I see Harrison Ford at that time during this film in process where he was beaten down, pissed off, you know, frustrated, <laughs> impatient sick of this director who was more focusing on the, the visual minutiae and stuff like that instead of, you know, Ridley, what am I doing here? You know, what is this scene about? You know, give me some dialogue. You know, I, I actually see that. And I think so much of the, the behind the scenes stuff with Blade Runner and the stuff that went on and the problems and the delays. And this is no discredit to Scott because more than a lot of films we've discussed, I think a lot of what we ended up with is because of the type of person Ridley Scott was and because he wouldn't compromise and because he knew that he had this vision that he wanted to get up on screen and through hell or high water he was going to do it i, I just see you know the, the kind of the, the strain and whatever on harrison ford's face and it just works perfectly given who his character is and and what you know the story required of him as an actor I think that um, he does work really, really well when he's working with an, uh, a director who does push him. And Ridley Scott did push him, whether it was in a way that he wanted to be pushed or not. You know, you can argue with that. But I think that, you know, when you think about who he worked with and he gives his best performances, like uh, Francis Coppola, you know, the two films he was with, Francis Coppola yeah. in the 80s, he had a string of fantastic movies like, uh, you know, uh, Witness, Mosquito Coast. He had Frantic, Working Girl, Presumed Innocent. Uh, and I, it's my theory, right? And you can disagree if you like. But I always think that he tried to get the Oscar with regard to Henry, and when that failed, it's almost like he he gave up after that. No, I agree, That's Steve. That's I fully fair. agree. That's yeah, a fair yeah. comment. Fair comment. But with um, Blade Runner, now he was really, really pushed by Scott, not in the way that he wanted to be. He wasn't. He he, he wasn't manipulated. He wasn't. He wasn't fondled. He was just ignored a lot of the time. You yeah. Know? And and that really, really did come out in his um, performance. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah. You know, the Ridley Scott form of extremists in terms of the kind of uh, rigors he puts his performers to, Ridley Scott is not an actor's director. There are some who you can say are that for sure. And I think Peter Weir in, in particular, and even Kubrick, as much of a taskmaster as he was, these guys would drill down into the actors to get something different. And, you know, Lumet, all these guys are actors, directors. But Ridley Scott was a man who would obsess over the thread count of sheets in a scene. But you can tell, did not have a lot of time to figure out what was the motivation of a character in a scene. Like, what could the actor play? Was the actor cold? Was the actor, did the guy have to pee? Whatever it is. And yet there are some actors who thrive in that because, you know, whatever Ridley Scott's shortcomings might have been as a director in terms of dealing with actors, they did not screw up. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, you know, it didn't screw up Matt Damon in The Martian. It, there are all these great performances time and time again where the actors rise to the moment. I mean, even even a movie like Matchstick Man, which is one of my unheralded Ridley Scott favorites, you know, Nicolas Cage and S Sam Rockwell really get up in there. You know, they, they, there's a lot of space and I think they create their own uh, magic inside of, of you know the atmosphere that Ridley Scott provides, but there is a there are a lot of actors who are just sort of left over, wondering what is there for me, and I have to self motivate. They can't all do that. Yeah, can you imagine um, Dustin Hoffman working with Ridley Scott? I mean, Tootsie <laughs> was made in 1982, and you know all the problems that he had. You know with uh, uh, his motivations, and you know uh, he was known as a difficult um, actor. Yeah. He was known as somebody who needed a lot of feedback from the director. I, I tell you what, the production would have been even more trouble, I think, if Dustin Hoffman was involved. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on from forward. You've got your fellow adopted countryman Rutger Hauer. Now he he was cast <laughs> he was cast before Scott had even met him. Now production executive Catherine Haber she showed Scott Katie Tipple, Soldier of Orange and Turkish Delight, the Paul Verhoeven films which Rutger Hauer was in, and and Scott was sold. You know, she, he was like, yeah, he's our guy. Sean Young, she was screen tested. She reminded Scott of Vivian Lee, and he felt that she had the perfect look of a Rachel in his mind. Daryl Hannah, who was cast as Pris, you know, she was very young at the time. She'd been a gymnast in school, which was then incorporated into her character. Joanna Cassidy sold herself as Zora because she had had a pet snake and knew how to handle them. And that would obviously, you know, be something that would be part of the her main scene in the film. But then she'd also really sold them on her strong physicality, but also her femininity at the same time. You know, Edward James Olmos, who was cast as Gaff, he was kind of obsessed with his characters, like this unique dialect, this this city kind of speak that he, he uses, which was a mix of Hungarian, German and French. I, I still, to this day, I, I'm completely fascinated by the character of Gaff and his role in this film, which we'll come to later when we move on to one of the biggest talking points of Blade Runner and, and the, the theory surrounding a certain thing. But, you know, you've got M.M. at Walsh. Uh, who's the guy that plays Holden whose name I can never remember? Morgan Paul. Morgan Paul. Now, Morgan Paul, yeah. actually, um, you know, he was really played an important role in the casting process because he actually did all the, the script readings for, for Deckard. Scott would go to him and say, oh, which actress do you like? And he said, oh, yeah, definitely for Rachel, yeah. Nina Axelrod, she's, she's perfect. And then Scott would obviously go with Sean Young. <laughs> He's great as well in, in a small role, which is which obviously cut even smaller because after he gets shot by... Leon in, in in the opening scene. There's, there was a later scene which was in the work print version, I think, but then it was later deleted. In fact, was that actually ever in the work print? I couldn't tell you for sure, but I was surprised to see that in Dangerous Days. I, you know, like the character serves no use at that point. It's it was a wise it was a wise deletion. It was, yeah, hundred percent. Just you know, the cast of Blade Runner, James Hong, who who plays Chew. Sky, how about this for the cast? Uh, this is this is weird when I was sort of doing a little count here in terms of morbidity. 
Only Rutger Hauer and Brian James, for the most part, are dead. Everyone else is still with us. Even yeah. M.M. Walsh, who's about 118 years old, is still around. Joe Turkle is still alive. That's amazing. Well, didn't Brian James think he died in 99? Yeah, Brian James was, that's, you know, that's an interesting guy right there. I kept thinking of, um, you know, we grew up watching Brian James because he had this really strange look to him. Uh, you know, he he was like a roughneck Los Angelino who got, or maybe he's from Southern California. I forget where he's from. He had, I mean, this is a digression. J- J- Brian James was a hard living man, had a big cocaine I- issue. He cleaned up. And then towards the end of his life, he was a sponsor and a cocaine counselor for a lot of actors in Hollywood. And it turns out that his heart was so damaged by cocaine yeah. abuse. The scarring is what caused his fatal heart attack in 1990, whatever it was, nine or so. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was only 54 when he died. Yeah, he was. I know. Right? Sad, isn't yeah. it? Impeccable cast. William Sanderson. Yeah, Bill Sanderson, who was a, a Walter Hill regular. And, you know, r- right after this, a lot of people kind of forget, because, again, we're old men and we know this, is that he was in the New Heart show on uh, CBS in the United States in the 1980s, where he had his biggest success was playing um, Larry, uh, who he was the comic relief on New Heart as Larry and his, bro- his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. Very strange comedic trio. It's like a proto-Kramer of their time. So he went from this and other Walter Hill movies to sitcom success in the 1980s. Mm. I think, well, next on my sort of list of talking points, you know, before we move on to the film itself, is, is the design of the film. Visual Futurist, you know, the, the, the kind of title that he was given in the production, Sid Mead, and production designer Lawrence Paul, they headed the look of, of the film under, obviously, the constant watch of Ridley Scott. Let's talk about Sid Mead, because, you know, I've always been aware of Sid Mead's, his, his design work and, 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 and the stuff that he did on countless films, especially Blade Runner and Alien. But this is something I only, rec- I only recently realised. Mead's design ethic is that when he is tasked to design anything, be it a vehicle, an object, or a piece of futuristic clothing, he'll never just draw, say, the vehicle. Never just draw it on its own with a white background. He'll always place the vehicle in situ in an environment. And then he will create that entire environment, be it a street location or just an entire section of a futuristic city as a backdrop. Talk about value for money from this guy. You, you say, right, Sid, we need you to design the spinner. He'll give you the spinner, but he will also give you a portion of the city surrounding it. And you're so much of his design. And I, I remember seeing uh, this little uh, Blade Runner art book, which came with, I think, maybe the 30th or 35th anniversary Blu-ray edition. And it, and it was like an excerpt of this art of Blade Runner book. And some of the pictures, and you just looked at them and thought, yeah, that, that could literally be an image from the film or... An image from another film which I would have seen, which Blade Runner went on to influence, something like Akira. Some of the films that he's done and some of the images and uh, that he's he's involved in are so iconic, though. You know, yeah. he, didn't he do the Vija scenes in um, Star Trek? The, the motion picture. Motion picture, yes. He involved. He was involved in uh, Aliens. He was involved in creating the the Atats for Empire Strikes Back. That man has got his fingerprints on film history. Yes. And he was he was a big part of Tron, 1982. He, this was a big year for him, you know? He was, yeah. And, you know, luckily, the month-long actor's strike, it gave Lawrence Paul and his crew the extra time they needed to, to kind of nail the look of the production. You know, Warner Brothers, they wanted the film made to schedule and made to budget. And there were obvious, you know, delays. And certainly that actor's strike gave them you know the, the the time to nail the look of the film because there's no cg anything that isn't a wide scale model shot is just up close and personal tangible real stuff real vehicles props like 
you know, Sid Mead, when he designed the, the, the kind of parking ticket machine in the street, he'd come up with this whole thing about it had this built-in safety mechanism that if someone tried to tamper with it, they'd get you know, a fatal electric shock. I mean, he thought of everything on, on in, you know, in such explicit detail. Yeah, well, there was a, um, a sort of arithmetic or a calculus they used on the shooting, especially for the guys who were doing miniature work. So it, it went from the design and the schematic level all the way to the dudes who were gluing pieces of piping onto, you know, um, you know, one eighteenth size miniatures. And they said, uh, you know, you lose so much in the camera. So what you need to do is you need to go like over by 15 to 20 percent in terms of detail because you're going to lose so much. It, it All the manpower was not wasted, but it required more work to make these miniatures look more real just because the, uh, the you know, the actual resolution of the cameras would lose some of that filigree on the buildings and the, and the small things. And, you know, it wasn't just for miniature shots from a distance. It was also from close-up stuff on the, uh, you know, what was it, the, the, the Warner's lot. Yeah, it was Warner, Warner back lot, wasn't it? And uh, it was, Yeah. You know, Scott makes it sound like it was his idea, and it may well have been the fact that, you know, I've got these these sort of ready-made buildings that look like they're from, like, a 30s or 40s-era gangster flick, and how can I use that in this futuristic sort of environment? So, well, you know, I'll tell you what, the future which, which I'm going to be creating, it's basically putting stuff on top of existing buildings and structures. It's, it's, it's doing, you know, similar to what Terry Gilliam did in Brazil. Yeah, with all of those pipes and ductwork and and stuff, which is just kind of stuck onto a building because it's going to be cheaper to modify a building than to pull it down and completely rebuild it. Have um, either of you guys taken the the, the Warner's tour in Los Angeles? No. Because I I did that. I want to say back in 2015. You know, and it's like when you you go through there and you're walking through the streets and you see that it's like okay, you know, this is the courthouse from uh, Back to the Future. Uh, you know, this is the clock tower. Uh, Hail Caesar was being shot around that time when I was there, and so it was dressed up to look more like a Roman forum. And to think that, like, shows as low as um, Gilmore Girls, you know, that this was their neighborhood, that they were shot right there on the Blade Runner set. To think that it's like, oh, this thing dresses up, it dresses down, but it has worn many, many hats uh, for Warner Brothers, and a lot of screen magic has been done to it along the way. Yeah. Well, we talked about the casting, the design, you know, the writing. The actual shoot of Blade Runner, it was trouble from the start. And even after the first day of shooting, because Scott took so long and because he didn't get anywhere near through the shot schedule for that day, by the end of day one, they were already five days behind schedule. How do you do that? Exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like the delays that Kubrick caused on The Shining, which then had a knock-on effect then on The Empire Strikes Back because they wanted to use the same sound stages. Yeah, I, know, I am going to make a comparison there between Ridley Scott and Stanley Kubrick because they were both visual perfectionists. I certainly think it comes through in their films. Scott was being criticised by the financiers for shooting huge amount of, amounts of takes, much like Kubrick did, but he didn't take kindly to people questioning his methods. You know, there were other problems. Uh, director of photography, Jordan Cronoweth, he was suffering from the onset of Parkinson's and for the last month of the shoot was in a wheelchair. You know, let's discuss the cinematography in Blade Runner, which, you know, Christ, if we don't contain ourselves, that could be an episode in itself. Like the use of lighting throughout, mixed with the rain and, and the neon and the smoke, you know, it's just majestic. How much of that is, is Cronenworth? How much of it is Scott? I, I don't know because I think there's such a vague delineation here between the, the art design and the cinematography. Well, and... How about the fusion between, you know, the director is the one who calls the shots in terms of, uh, you know, Ridley 
was the one who said, uh, let's just have uh, the weird, it almost looks like a water effect when they're inside, um, you know, they're inside the uh, Turkle's offices, they're inside Tyrell's offices. It yeah, almost the, sh- like, the shimmery effect, yeah. Yeah, that's like, there's no source for it. It's no. unmotivated. But, you know, it's like, he, he and, and likewise, inside inside Decker's apartment, there's an unmotivated light source coming through there too. I think it's a flicker. It almost looks like a propeller blade that's flickering the light. And, you know, the thing is, it's like Scott could say, I want to set these things up. This is what the scene needs. But Jordan Croden with, you know, everyone who's working on the um, gaffing and electrical department outside of camera has to acquit that stuff. And then then his focus puller and the guy, you know, his camera operators have to be able to capture that in the best light possible. Yeah. You know, especially considering all the smoke that was being put in the air. And I thought for the longest time this stuff was dry ice smoke, which is what we expect it to be. This is carbon smoke. This was burned coal kicking an actual char in the atmosphere, which, I mean, you know, I... I would question their judgment to not using dry ice smoke. However, the results deliver exactly what you expect. You know, we don't think of all the people who died of emphysema making this movie, but because the result looks incredible for that much particulate in the air. Yeah, because they were refusing to compromise because Scott wouldn't compromise because he knew that, you know, Christ, if you use dry ice smoke, it's just going to make it look like a music video. And he <laughs> he was an expert in that field, wasn't he? He knew you know the difference between a music video, which he'd shot several of, and a film. But one of the things that I think that the photography does is you, you talk about that shimmer effect in Tyrell's uh, office. It does give a visual uh, expression of elitism. You know, they they don't have to have a you know, it doesn't have to have a source. I mean, everything is there just for uh, aesthetics only. Yeah. Whereas in Deckard's apartment, you expect this flickering because something's not going to be working in his apartment. It looks like a um, trash heap. I mean, he obviously doesn't look after it. He's got, he's got piles of rubbish everywhere. The dishes, you know, the sink is full of dishes that he hasn't washed. Yeah. And you expect something not to be working because he doesn't care. He doesn't worry about it. He just stays there and then he goes off, you know. So you don't have to see where it comes from, but it does add to the characters and it does add to, to the personalities. It does, yeah. And, you know, as we said, it, it was no secret that Ford wasn't happy with the shoot and, and the lack of dialogue his character had and Scott's minutiae obsessed method time constraints because of how long he was taken led to the notorious bad wig on joanna Casti's stunt double for a death scene tensions then were growing between scott and the american crew after he quite foolishly really if you think about told a british newspaper that he'd rather work with an english crew that article then got around and the crew started wearing t-shirts with yes governor my ass on them <laughs> and at the conclusion of the final shooting day bud yorkin and jerry Parencio issued Scott and Michael Dealey with a notice that they were effectively being sacked from the picture. But then they later relented, realising that with no Ridley Scott, they had no film because, you know, he would be needed to piece everything together. And Bob you know, after the shoot, then he also had the special effects, which Scott had his his, his hands in. Let's talk about Douglas Trumbull, who we recently lost. His work, Richard Urisich and many other people who worked on Blade Runner, they were legends of the special effects industry. Blade Runner had benefited from the, the motion, same motion control rigs and cameras that Trumbull had used on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The, the city was thought of in terms of being a character in itself. I fully agree with that. I'm fully on board with that because from the opening Hades landscape, which you know, that was a forced perspective shot that was only about 15 feet deep, yet gives this impression that it goes on for miles. And you know, going back to smoke, as you mentioned, smoke played a huge part in that effect and adding miles of depth to something that is only, say, 15 feet deep. You've got all of these matte paintings, like the legendary matte painting artist Rocco Joffrey, who later worked on Robocop, he did some of the best matte painting work I've ever seen to extend the sets and the cityscapes. It's all pretty much seamless. 
And Philip K. Dick was he was shown in early effects real kind of a, a certainly less than finished version of the film, but you could already see what Scott had done, and, and he just said, "How is this possible? It's like you guys have hardwired my brain," and he was just completely blown away by it. You do get a sense of scale and a sense of size of yeah. that city, don't you? I mean, I don't know if you know if any of you have been in a, you both probably have been in a city when it's crowded. It's usually tourists, you know, but uh, obviously in this city, I don't think tourism exists in um, the world of Blade Runner. But we know when it's pouring down with rain and it's like, you know, the streets are crowded and you know, it, it's a miserable, miserable place and it really, really does capture that. Yeah, it does. It's, you know, the one thing that they got wrong about it is that there would have been a line of. Um, Asshole tourists clicking their rolly bags going to Airbnbs inside that version of Los Angeles because that's what's happened to the world in the in the time since between Blade Runner shot and today is that every single metropolitan area is filled with uh, jackass tourists who are looking at books thinking oh that's that that noodle bar that he goes to that's the noodle bar we should all go to that's that's the place that's the way you got to hit that <laughs> says the man who's just come back from Paris yeah exactly <laughs> uh, post production then you've got. The first screening was, was seen as being impenetrable and, and confusing. So the voiceover, which initially appeared in Fancher's first script, that was brought in as a way to kind of counter this. And even Scott said, you know, it's remarkable. What what the fuck does any of it mean? Test cards from preview audiences confirmed that the film was confusing to the uninitiated pressure and further the use of the voiceover. Ford recorded it as is well-known as his common knowledge, never believing that it would be used, and he just felt that it didn't work, but he was contractually obliged to provide it. Now, Guillermo del Toro loves the voiceover. Frank Darabont, the Shawshank Redemption director, he hates it, and he hates how clumsily it explains Batty's motivation in saving Deckard. And he is right. He is right. I used to to love that bit of the voiceover in the, the theatrical version. Describe what you're talking about, because I think everyone should know what you're describing. After Batty saves Deckard, and then he gives his incredible tears in the rain monologue, and then he dies. Ford then describes the, the fact that at this one moment at, at the end, that Batty, he, he loved life, my life, his life, everyone, he, you know, and he just wanted the same answers any of us want. And it's, it's all very much kind of like, yeah, you know, it, it, it ties in with the whole motivation of Batty saving him and about the fact that, you know, he just wanted more life. But it does, as Darabont says, ram home something that you don't need that voiceover to tell you it. Yeah, it's it's only there to for people who can't think for themselves. I think. Yes, it is. You know, um, I, I I have to say, right, watching the original cut the other night, the theatrical cut, I can't say I really hated the voiceover. I hadn't see, seen the film with the voiceover for couple of decades you know i've always chosen the versions without so i can't say i hated it but there's one line in it which really made me cringe i know what you, i know i know what i know you're the line about, sushi oh, oh, oh yeah, the, the sushi, yeah the sushi sushi line. that's what my, ex-wife yeah, my, my wife used to call me, me uh, cold, cold fish. fish terrible oh. sky what do you what do you think the line oh, is well mine's going to be the one where he's describing mm at walsh's character as being yeah, the type go. of cop you used to call a black man oh yes i was flawed i I, yeah, 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 yeah. I cannot remember, well, I can vaguely remember that line, but listening to that line now, I yes. was like, whoa, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah. Even in the context it's used, it still seems like, no, it, it wasn't necessary. You know, th- this is the kind of thing that actually kills my enjoyment of being able to go back and watch Walter Hill's 48 Hours, because I would say at least 35% of that movie is 
Nick Nolte yelling the N-word at, at uh, Eddie Murphy. And it's like, I get that there was a sliding scale that white creators didn't give a shit about these kind of things back in the early 80s. But I mean, it sticks out now as being particularly egregious. And so whenever I go back and see a movie where they were liberal in their use of the slur, I think that it was just bad bookkeeping and a lot of insensitivity on their part. And it, it should have stuck out then, but it's certainly almost unforgivable now. And it would have been something, right, if Bryant actually lived up to that sort of damning description, but he doesn't. Yeah, that's true. Well, we don't get to know him, really. No, do we? we don't. So no. that makes that line even more kind of redundant and makes it... Don't get me... Yeah, don't get me wrong. And Mehmet Walsh does... Uh, when He he brings uh, a history with him, but, I mean, it's a limited history in terms of what you need to know for that character. It, it doesn't go that far, even though he's a very lived-in guy. He hits a... You know, just, just a little bit of Mehmet goes a long way to add some text to it, but that is completely beyond the pale. It's unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially as as you say, I mean, just looking at him and the way that he talks, you know everything you need to know about the guy. But they're trying to make him into this kind of, I don't know, Rod Steiger kind of, you know, character from In the Heat of the Night, and he's not. No, he's not. Yeah. No, he, no, he's not, is he? You know, he, yeah. he just seems to be somebody who is just pissed off with his life and yeah. he's a pre, um, you know approaching retirement. Hey, I have a question. Since we're on the beginning of the movie, this, this is the first time, even though I watched this movie countless times, the very first shot, we you know, hearkening back to the effect shot of the flames belching uh, and that hellscape of, I guess it is, it's downtown Los Angeles being shown. You know, the cutaway is to an eye. It's a photographic effect of a still of an, of an open eye and the uh, flames curl around the cornea of it. You know, I never really questioned before, whose eye is that? And I think I got the answer this time around, but I never asked the question before. So who, I mean, who do you think is looking at the skyline of Los Angeles as that opening camera, uh, you know, push pans in? If it was Gaff, we'd know because he's got very unique kind of like silver blue contacts all throughout the film, isn't he? Yeah. And it's not a replicant because all the replicants have got this uh, red glow. We'll come on to that later. Is that something that they specifically put in from the start that every replicant is going to have that sort of red kind of cat's eye effect sort of thing? Yeah, I, I don't know who that eye belongs to. You know, is it Deckard? I don't know. My vote is Batty. I think that if you're going to play, again, this is Bill Scurry's headcanon. I think that that is Batty coming in on a shuttle. And this is his approach to Los Angeles and seeing the city as a baby almost for the first time. And yes, it doesn't have the... Um, you don't have that sort of photographic effect, but it would make sense. In other words, like we are seeing you know, Neo Los Angeles the same time Batty would be. And it would make some sense because they had just hijacked that shuttle and are trying to, you know, they, they think they drop it in the ocean. It's floating is what they say beforehand. Do you know, Bill, like you say, the amount of times I've seen this from, I've never until now until yeah. brought it up. I've yeah. never questioned whose eye that's supposed to be. It's a fantastic effect, though. Let's talk about that opening. Before we even get to that, we've got two minutes of opening credits with some really beautifully sparse Van Gallis score. Before, we then have an opening crawl of white text on black, save for that one word replicant in red when it first appears. And then we have in much bolder text, Los Angeles, November 2019. And then we come to that opening shot, which is, I haven't got the words to describe it, but it is just magnificent. It's soaring and with the music as well. 
Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I, I was going to, one of the notes I kept thinking of one watching this, and this is exactly what it kicks in, because we're not even talking about performances at this point. We're not even talking about, uh, it, this is Douglas Trumbull. This is a miniature department so much as it is, um, you know, just giving you, the audience, some sense of tone, where we're going with it. But, I mean, since it is so much, this is where you get introduced to Handshake Deal with Vangelis comes in around, Vangelis, sorry, Vangelis comes in around this time. I was thinking to myself, boy, you know, we don't know what uh, Guernica sounds like. We don't know what uh, Jackson Pollock's paintings sound like. You know, we don't know what Rembrandt's Nightwatch sounds like. And yet, I'm thinking, like, well, we quite well know what Blade Runner sounds like. There are so few movies or pieces of art where the soundtrack, where the sound, where the instruments, where the actual spirit of the creator of the music is so embedded in the soul of the film. I mean, I, you know, you could put Johnny Williams in here too, but Johnny Williams, his spirit goes from so many films around this time that, you know, it could zip from even Close Encounters to Superman to Star Wars to Indiana Jones uh, seamlessly. And you say, oh, that's, that's the thumper to the creator. And yet Vangelis is a guy where this, for the most part, is his biggest I mean, Chariots of Fire came out a year before, but I mean, he doesn't have a, a bigger introduction than this movie or something that sticks and lasts the test of time. Every single note of Vangelis's soundtrack, every single note of his score is the sound of these paintings, of, the, of this, 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 you know, painting with light, with miniatures, with art, with actors. It is inextricably linked to Blade Runner in a way that, you know, it, it begins with this opening shot and his his soaring synthesizers. The music yes. is just amazing. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Vangelis, I have to say. Mm -hmm. And oh, you, you see those, you know, they are miniatures. We know they're miniatures. And yet because of the music, they just look huge. Yeah. Everything looks massive because of this music. And the only word I can, you know, I know I've used it before. The only word I can think of it to use is soaring. Because that's what it is for me. Yeah, it's apt. It's totally apt. It is, yeah, yeah. And then, right, hang on, Bill. The shot of the eye. What's the scene that follows? Uh, it isn't that a cut in? All right, so it's it's, 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 it's Holden um, interviewing Leon, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I so guess I, you're I well, wonder if the eye is is one of those two. Uh, it's possible. Yeah, you know, because it, it, the, the next shot is the uh, spinners approaching Tyrell Tower. You know, the giant um, industrial pyramid. Yeah. So it could it could be there. There is definitely some room for it to be one of the investigators coming in to do point comp for sure. That scene with with Holden running the void comp test on Leon. You talk about the music, Bill, right? And one of the things about Blade Runner when James Hancock and I discussed in depth Blade Runner five years ago. Once that episode had finished. And, you know, how you're thinking, oh, what things didn't I forget to bring up? One of the things that I was really kicking myself for not bringing up was the sound design. But not just the sound design in itself, it's well, the fact that the sound design and the score are so well integrated. Diegetic pieces of sound effect in the film, say, for example, Harrison Ford, like, pressing the piano keys as he's, like, pondering you know, Rachel and, and whatever, and how then that is mixed into Van Gallis' score. You've, you've also got other little ways that the sound is used to just enhance the atmosphere. And I, I don't know if I consciously noticed it before, but when Holden is pressing with a description of how this tortoise is baking on his back, you know, in the sun, there's this echo to his voice that I don't know if I've ever consciously picked up on, but it, it just enhances that. And it's coupled with a heartbeat sort of thing as well, because Leon is obviously getting distressed by this image that his brain can't yeah. comprehend because he's not emotionally mature enough to, to deal with something like that. 
Yeah, that's true. And and not only that, but you know, you talk about it, Vangelis is since a reverbing in a way that since hadn't reverbed in films beforehand. So there's a larger hall echo to just about every single soundscape that comes through in this movie, whether it is diegetic sound or the soundtrack. They're behaving the same yeah. way. Do you think, right, that before Leon shoots Holden, the Holden knew for sure at this point that he was a replicant? He, he almost gives a smirk before. He... I, I don't think he cares. I think it's just another one, another interview. I think, isn't he? I think he's just an office. I'll tell you, I'll say one thing about this. So when um, Deckard is talking to Tyrell later, after Rachel has been tested, Tyrell asks him, how many times does it normally take? How many questions? Def- yeah. How many questions? I think he says about 20. He says 30, 30 or 40 cross yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, Leon took one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then, after then, Leon... Uh, shoots Holden. We cut to some more stunning shots of, of, of like this neon-lit city, and then we descend upon the noodle bar, and when we get our first look at Rick Deckard, he's then approached by Gaff, who says the Captain Bryant wants to see him. They get into the spinner and ascend above the city, and it was here that in the original theatrical cut that Ford's voiceover gave us our first bit of exposition, and then we get back into Frank Gallus's amazing score. From there, Gaff flies Deckard over the Terrell HQ to run the the Voigtkampf test on Rachel. That conversation he has just before that with, with, with Bryant, there's just little lines in that which have always stuck with me when Deckard say, no, no, you know, I was quick when I came in here, I'm twice as quick now. And then he says, <laughs> if you're not cops, you're little people. I, I love that line. Yeah. If you're not a cop, then what are you going to be? You're going to be one of them? You're going to be just, you know, one of these people in the street who are just whatever people in 2019 pollution-filled Los Angeles do. Perhaps. Well, that's a... Uh... That's Lou Escobar from Chinatown. You know, that's the guy who's yeah. still on the force talking to the guy from outside the force who's sort of still working extrajudiciarily. Extra uh, you know, there's some there's some bleed over from those two things, and they're both again some great examples of latter day LA noir from this from the 70s and the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes over to obviously Terrell HQ to run this run the test on on Rachel. I've got to say it. There are some sets in films. They just rock me, and you know, one one of the ones which has always been one of my favourites is the the carbon freezing chamber in the Empire Strikes Back. It's just it's just absolute perfection. But Terrell's office, and you know, we've mentioned that shimmery effect, which doesn't seem to come from anywhere. But it's like the lighting, and the way that that kind of sort of transparent screen comes down to make the room darker. It's just magnificent, and it's the sound as well because when that screen comes down. It, it's got this kind of like hum to it which kind of blends in with the score and it just all works perfectly it's got i can't even i'm struggling to describe it but there's like a an ambience to it all which just it's mesmerizing and, and i've said recently i think me and richie were having a conversation the other day i was saying i, I watched blade runner uh, the final cut a few weeks back and i don't think i watched it i just sat there and experienced it and i think that's the best way i can describe this film you just experience blade runner and if if it's a film that works for you you just let it wash over you and this scene is it's just mesmerizing how about this the question is if, if you have to um add some kind of sound effect or an ambiance to uh, warm up what is essentially an egyptian tomb i mean tyrell's building is a pyramid yeah. And everything, everything inside looks like Cairo or Memphis or one of these cities. I mean, it, with the gigantic uh, plinths and the Ionic or the Dorian columns or whatever the hell architecture they used inside. It's dark and yet it still has a warmth to it. It is crushingly brutal and yet um, still human-sized 
a lot of it comes from the tone of people's voices reverberating inside of it, but also the ambient effects of the machinery, the ambient effects of, you know, uh, the low tones that Vangelis is using in his soundtrack. Everything sort of warms it up and makes it human scale, which is – and that allows the audience to inhabit it as well. I got a different um, uh, feeling from it because it reminded me of the bedroom at the end of 2001. You know, how you just expect a monolith to be appearing at the bottom of his bed as he's, uh, you know <laughs> – that's that's right. I found it quite cold and lonely because he's surrounded by things, um, and yet what he's surrounded by mostly is space, and that is in contrast with the streets where you know most people live, which are crowded and uh, you know. Um, but he's just living. You know, he's got this huge amount of space, and you know he's got nobody to share it with. And I found it quite bare and lonely. I did. Yeah. But, but, you know, one of the key things I think that just makes this scene is Sean Young and the way she's framed, you know, dressed and lit as she is smoking that cigarette. It's just, it's just jaw dropping. And, and, you know, it's, it's the way the smoke from that cigarette works as well. It's also, there's, there's an editing thing going on that he starts asking her a question and then the kind of, the audio of his voice sort of fades out and goes into the background. And then it's like as if we almost have a time jump because as Terrell says you know how many questions did it you know it, it took a hundred questions with Rachel didn't it obviously we're only hearing one or two or three of the questions that he asked that this thing went off uh, you would imagine a couple of hours potentially and there's this little time jump that happens where the audio sort of ble- bleeds out and then it, it comes back in and maybe I'm not even describing it very well people who are familiar with the film will know what I'm talking about but it's just little touches like that that just work they just work so well yeah, I mean, you know, like one of the things in the in the background material that was they talked about uh, the way Ridley felt he had to almost like hand coach Sean Young's performance because she was such a neophyte. Yeah. He liked the look, he liked her intent, he liked you know her raw material, her intention, but it's like I think he think he, he felt like he had to perch on her shoulder to draw this thing out of her, and so all the rest of the actors felt like they were being ignored because Ridley was focusing on how dense the smoke was and what Sean Young's line readings were. Mm. However, when you watch the finished product, I mean, I'm a big Sean Young fan. I know that she's had a rough uh, last 15 years or so with you know, one sort of hardship after another, whether it was addiction or I don't know if it was bipolar. She's had a couple of different uh, setbacks along the way. And you know, she's, she's an actress, I think in her, her 60s now, so it's tough for her anyway. But I mean, uh, this was her sweet spot. I mean, between this and Dune and No Way Out, I mean, she really had a moment in time where she locked into, uh, she was in the boost with 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 Jimmy Woods. I mean, she, she really had a couple. You know, she had a stretch of movies here, which were great, and she was great in them. And if if it took Ridley Scott sitting on top of her to kind of press this performance out of her, to give something otherworldly or something noir or something Barbara Stanwyck, I mean, it worked. She really rose to the occasion for a young actor and gave something otherworldly. She doesn't appear. I think she was 22 or 23. She doesn't appear to be that young when you watch this. Yeah, she's she's like initially aloof, but then very quickly that turns into vulnerable and she just nails it. Yeah. So then from there, Gaff and Deckard, they head over to Leon's apartment. Deckard finds the scale in the bathtub, which, you know, fair play, he must have good eyesight given how poorly lit it is. <laughs> Come on, really, you know. It's just like, you know, it, it looked grimy as hell and then he sees this fish scale or whatever you know finds the photographs in the drawer uh, Leon then from outside the building sees that someone's inside and then we meet Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty they then head over to Hannibal Chew's iLab Chew played by well I think arguably Hollywood's most prolific actor James Hong who has 450 acting credits to his name 
Wow. Wild. And he's, he's almost 100 now. He's, he's yeah. in his nineties. He's still yeah. with us. Yeah. He just got his, uh, I want to say he got his Hollywood star. I think it was in 2020, I think it was. Yeah, they found all the, the other Chinese and a lot of Asian American actors got together to buy him the star in Hollywood Boulevard. And he really appreciated it. I mean, nobody deserves it more than him, but it was a real honor for a guy who like toiled in the background for a lot of stuff. It's that, that scene with Leon and, and Batty confront Hannibal Chu. It, it always used to creep me out with the way that the way that Leon just took those eyes out of the cold storage thing and just put them on his shoulder. And it it, it always reminded me of um, this description I read of what um, was it either the Jack the Ripper or the Yorkshire Ripper used to do to his victims, where he used to lay out bits of the organs and stuff he'd removed around them and it just always creeped me out and reminded me of that and you've got that line that the batty says if only you could see what i've seen with your eyes and that's a line that i think nicely kind of foretells batty's final monologue and then chu points them towards jf sebastian for the answers as to how they can extend their lifespan because as terrell explains this these these nexus six replicants are given memories as a cushion to aid them in dealing with their growing or growing capacity for emotion something which they haven't got because you know they've only got this four-year lifespan and then you know they struggle with emotions due to their, their kind of relative immaturity but batty especially has, has got this kind of you know wisdom and knowledge to him and obviously you know they, they're given memories they're given personalities but even in that sort of fiery the angels fell sort of line that he quotes fiery the angels fell deep thunder rolled around their shores burning with the fires of orc. Just those little things like that. You, you, you don't spend a great deal of time with him on screen until the final confrontation. You know, Rutger Hauer just gave that character so much depth with relatively little material, really. It's yeah, a brilliant we, performance, yeah. Can we, can we talk for a minute about Rutger Hauer? Because the cojones of this guy, who made a conscious decision to uh, brachiate from the Dutch film industry to Hollywood thinking, I need to make it, I need to graduate from one place to the other. Granted, he had worked with Paul Verhoeven, I want to say making like four or five films, and he had a long television series here in Holland called Floris, which went from the 1960s. And, you know, he really worked on his chops and, you know, for one of the most experimental transgressive filmmakers that the continent had at the time. But in terms of making himself more commercially accessible, I mean, he picked the right move right before this, he had made two films uh, for the English film market. He made there was a there was a World War II uh, Nazi TV movie miniseries, which was sort of the David Gur at the time. But really, the big practice he had for this was Nighthawks for Stallone, which you know I think is jumping into the deep end of trying to get a, play against an actor who in Nighthawks Stallone was was usurping the director of that movie because he was trying to bigfoot the production. So essentially, Stallone was not comfortable sharing the spotlight with another actor, especially a guy like Rutger Hauer, who was clearly competition. So, I mean, this guy understood how big a move all this stuff was. He knew how big he wanted the, the spotlight. He, he pulled on that brass ring and uh, grabbed something amazing with this because he rose to the occasion. And considering that, again, English is not his first language, his whatever the weird aspect that the Dutch have in terms of being able to cover up their uh, Dutch accent to almost sound like a native-born Englishman is kind of uncanny. And it's been repeated along the line with people like Carice Van Houten and uh, Famke Janssen. But I mean, you know, Rutger Hauer goes all in, almost like birthing himself onto film for the first time for everybody to see. It's, yeah. it's really a marvel. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say it's it's his best role that I've seen him in. 
I've got to say as well, I love him as John Ryder in The Hitcher. He looks like he's having such a good time in that film. And yeah, you know, he's he's, he's great in, in, in Night Talks. And... Blind Fury. Oh, Blind Fury. Yes, yeah. I love that movie. I love that movie. I mean, yeah. the, the, the Dutch stuff, you guys, I know a lot of people haven't seen the Dutch stuff that he did between 70 and 80, but it's like, mm-hmm. if you go back time and watch a Turk, Turkish Fruit, uh, Katie Tipple, Spetters, that stuff is insane. I, he is so fucking good, and he is, like, ready to go. This is the beauty of working outside of Hollywood and just getting your chops, sh- uh, you know, sharpened, ready to work. And those movies are nuts. I, anybody can go back, and if you can deal with subtitles in the Dutch language, those are the ones for you, for sure. Oh, we haven't mentioned uh, Flesh and Blood, which is a favorite of mine. Oh, that's that film, a really good one, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that film is just so crazy. It's so It feels so loose, um, and yet... You know, it's so entertaining, and the the band of brothers in that film is just it's it's really entertaining. Yeah, Brian James again, right? He's in that yeah. one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Deckard goes back to his apartment, and he's in that he's in that elevator for quite some time before he realizes that uh, Rachel's hiding in it. So that great eyesight which helped him find that snake scale in Leon's bathtub <laughs> wasn't as sharp then, was it? He's tired. He's sleepy. You can see he's exhausted. You know. Yeah. She's really hidden in the shadows, well, in that little elevator, isn't she? So then Deckard then breaks it to Rachel that all of these memories that she's got are not her own by telling her things that only she should know he then sees how upset she is and he gets her a drink and she leaves now let's discuss the photograph of rachel as a little girl on the porch with her mother because as deckard looks at it towards the end of the shot it briefly moves like one of those live photos that you can take on an iphone now was that supposed to be a bit of technical a bit of a technical quality of photographs in the future that's future in inverted commas now obviously because 2019 is in the past or was it supposed to represent something else? Maybe something that Deckard is perceiving? I don't know, because if you look at, you know, when he's looking at some of the photographs later, he's able to look around corners on the photographs, you know? Uh, love you it. Know. Love that. Love it. Yes. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is supposed to be a technical aspect of our photograph or if it's supposed to represent something else. Every time I see it, I feel like, did I see that? Did it really move? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first couple of times I saw it, I was like, uh, is that supposed to happen? I, you know, yeah. it, it just and and now we have. I know this is one of your favourites, Bill. After Rachel leaves, Deckard on his balcony, looking down to the streets below, and it's the piece of score here called on the soundtrack, Blade Runner Blues. I think this is one of my favourite. In fact, this is my favourite piece of music from the film. Yeah, and then it then goes into then the scene of Pris as the same piece of music is playing as she is headed to JF Sebastian's place. But that, that one piece of music, Blade Runner Blues, with him just looking over the city, and it is, that is the atmosphere, the ambience, and just the overall feel and vibe of Blade Runner condensed down into one scene with one piece it's, of music. It's, it. it's an insuigenerous yeah, piece of art. It's, yes. it's, it's unspeakable. It's, it is city noir, isn't it? it it's modern, it's old-fashioned. You know, it combines it both. But Steve, Steve, how come this kind of thing hasn't... Like, why has no other artist kind of broached this? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of digital... Giorgio Moroder at the time was doing digital stuff. I mean, later on, Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer and a lot of other people who do digital digital scores. But why why has no one ever kind of gotten close to this sound? I I get that you can't replicate how good Vangelis is with his improvisational ability to put this together, but it... It does something, owing nothing to that Yamaha CS80 that he's pounding away on. That was that analog synth sound. 
there's just something about the creativity. I don't get why no one else has been able to approach this. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. I think you, know, you also like Tangerine Dream and people like that doing it. And I think they were trying to do something which was new and modern, whereas Vangelis was trying to do something old but with modern instruments. Yeah. And yeah. I th- you know, I think maybe that's what it is because the soundtrack, you know, you know that it's it, it's futuristic, but at the same time it does fit, it, you could put into a 40s film and it would almost fit. You know, I mean, it it does feel like an old soundtrack even though it's at the same time it feels like an utterly modern one as well. And as you'll yeah. come to guys, obviously Blade Runner visually in terms of the visual style of the film influenced so much stuff afterwards. But I've never heard, as you say, but I've never heard Van Gaal's score kind of pilfered or replicated in any way, shape, or form that could make me say, "Yeah, that that's that's someone trying to do a riff on Van Gaal's score." There, there were so other than Edgar Fruza and the rest of Tangerine Dream, who I mean, they had a they had a trail of bodies through the '80s, which is incredible. And I would say uh, Goblin and Fabio Frizzi and some of these Italians who did work for the Giallo stuff did as well. And those are some of my favorite soundtracks of all time because they're also analog synth. But in terms of the North American stuff coming out of Los Angeles, they had so little trust outside of like Harold Faltermeyer, who was doing the, the Beverly Hills Cop, like Axel F type jerking around on a Casio or a Yamaha. It's like that had that had a different sound. That was that, um, oh, this is what we think new wave music sounds like. This sounds like Mark Mothersbaugh's synthesizers that we're going to make this the Beverly Hills Cop theme. And again, I'm not hating on that at all, but it's not as atmospheric as, as this is. So what, like, what's the difference between Marauder's score for the never-ending story in 1980, was it 1984? Which is great. It's a very soaring piece of music as well, but it doesn't locate a piece of time. And again, you'd think that synthesizers for the never-ending story would not match, and yet they do because Marauder is just that good. Yeah. But I mean, again, putting the neo-noir thing with analog synths that Yamaha CS80 is a natural fit, and Vangelis was the one man who was able to do all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think with um, you know, like the Marauder stuff, you know, you listen to it now, and it does sound 80s. Yes. Whereas yeah, that's I correct. Think, yeah, yeah, you're right. I think with Blade Runner, it doesn't even today. It doesn't sound because I don't think he was trying to go for an 80s sound. I think he was trying just using modern instruments, futuristic instruments in many respects. But I think he was trying to go for something timeless. Steve, yeah, did he, you ever have you ever uh, watched the Bounty Roger Donaldson's Bounty from '84? Because Vangelis' soundtrack for that, you know, that that's a mutiny story that's set on the high seas in the in the 18th century, and it has a Vangelis soundtrack, and it's in Tahiti, and it's got Tony Hopkins and Mel Gibson, and it sounds completely at home. There, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not this, but it's close in that in terms of Vangelis being able to transcend time and space and give you something, that score to the bounty is completely slept on. I'll say the same for um, 1492. 1492. Yeah. I mean, I mm. think that that mm-hmm. is, again, it's, you know, it's it's modern, but it completely fits the yeah. era in which it's... Um, and, I, and that is my favorite soundtrack of all time, 1492. Wow, okay. You know I mean? I've, I've had that on um, tape and disc a few times and downloads, <laughs> and, you know, and I play it endlessly. My, my kids hate it. <laughs> it's like I said about the, you know, the way the sound effects and... It, Maybe it works in the way that the fact that they were able to integrate dialogue and sound effects with the score, because Van Gallis had recorded a, a big chunk of the score as they were filming, and Ridley Scott would actually he would play the score above that Warner Brothers backlot street location, 
just to sort of pump a bit of the atmosphere into the you know into the actors and the crew. And Sky, who does who does that sound like to you? That sounds like Leone and Morricone to me. Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I got to say though, if we're talking about all-time greatest scores, if you were going to sit me down and say right, write a list of you f- of the five greatest film scores that you've ever heard, this one is going to make that list one hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Oh yes, yeah. You know, if you're going to chuck something in by John Williams, I, I'd have to go with The Empire Strikes Back. I, 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 I would, I would maybe even pick that over the likes of Jaws, just because as a score, it is just so grand and operatic, and it's just got so many different um, themes in it which he introduced, which have now become synonymous with characters like Yoda, and then you've got the Han and Leia theme. That's one of the greatest by far. And Batman, I might add, from uh, the Batman, which he just. Michael Giacchino stole the Batman. Uh, yeah, thing. yeah, with the, yeah, the, the Imperial, Imperial March. March. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. You know, that's that is going to be up there, and th- there's a few others, a few others which are quite personal to me. You know, if if you're going to pick 1492, Steve, I would have to pick as one of my favorites. Maybe the score I've listened to more than most is Star Trek Generations, Dennis McCarthy's score, which I just think is one of the most beautiful film scores I've ever heard. Bill, as I said on Lord of the Rings episodes. Howard Shaw's sure, music for sure. those films is, yeah. is 100% going to be in my top five, and I would I would have to condense those scores from all three films just into one pick. The problem I have with um, things like top fives is that there's not enough positions in a top five for all the films. But Blade Runner, for me, <laughs> has, Blade Runner has always been it as one of the greatest scores, and I think there's an argument yeah. that you could make for it being the greatest film score because, like you said, no one has replicated it. No, I don't think anyone can. They could. Honestly, I think that it's entirely possible. I think that there was a dereliction of imagination in terms of what Los Angeles is willing to um, absorb. There was a moment, and I heard Vince DiCola say this, and you know, Vince DiCola, who, as we know, is our beloved, um, mm-hmm. our beloved scorer of Transformers, Transformers the movie, movie and Rocky IV, and among yeah. other things. Yeah, and so Vince DiCola said that there was this moment, this make or break moment in the '80s, where he wished that there was as open a um, process for a synthesizer as there was for orchestra. And Hollywood blinked and they doubled down on uh, strings and horns, which, you know, I'm not, I'm, I love strings and horns made 91% or 96% of, of, of all the scores that I love. But it's like, it has been to the exclusion of digital music entirely. Whereas I think there are some sterling examples of what digital music has given you. You want to say that Tangerine Dream scored a sorcerer, among other things. Uh, you know, the Tangerine Dream legend, as opposed to the Jerry Goldsmith version of legend, like those things show where it could go. But there's so few practitioners of digital music. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down in it, but I, I think it's a sort of missed opportunity, a little bit of a lost battle at this point. And I also think that one of the problems with when people try digital music is that quite often they forget themes. Yeah. And they just go for this, uh, you know, this sound, this, uh, this, this feeling, but they forget the actual theme and melodies. And um, Blade Runner's got that. Yeah, you're right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. But do you know, I don't think it has. John Williams would obviously he would be great at creating pieces of music which related to specific characters. Yeah, you know, he was a master of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Howard Shaw did it in relation to entire races and locations. You had the theme of Gondor, you had the themes of Rohan, you had the theme of you know, the Orcs, you had the theme of Isengard. He was great at doing that as well. I don't think Blade Runner's got that. I just think it's got this overall vibe and feel. And I think all of the music in that film doesn't relate to, maybe you've got the, the Rachel's theme, you know, the, the love theme from Blade Runner, but it's all just stuff that fits the city, the, you know, the vibe 
Los Angeles 2019. I think that could be Ridley Scott. Can you imagine sitting down together and uh, Van Gelder saying, okay, what do you want? Ridley Scott is not going to be the type of person saying, okay, I want a theme for this character and this character. He's going to be talking about the big picture. He's going to be talking about the city. He's going to be talking about, yeah. you know, the uh, everything but, isn't he, the characters? Or, or yeah, well, you know, it's, it's it winds up being this mortar that glues everything together rather than keeps it separate. In that respect, it's a wise choice to make. But Bill, mm. as, as you've mentioned recently, there isn't much that's been written or certainly recorded in so much as, you know, the Dangerous Days is a three hour, 35 minute making of documentary about Blade Runner. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's fascinating. But it literally skips over Van Gelis' score. Yeah, I can't explain that. That's, it's I, an omission. Yeah. And I've, I've looked for featurettes. I, you know, I've, I've gone through, you know, the DVDs and Blu-rays and whatever looking for a big chunky featurette on Van Gelis' score. And isn't there isn't one well i saw um if you look today i mean in the latter days i should say not actually today but uh, our moment there's a junkie xl during the pandemic start i forget he's a dutch guy i forget what his real name is and i you know i kind of thought the guy was softball and you know with all those um zach snyder scores but he, he's got chops he knows what he's doing yeah. but he did uh, a sit down i want to say it lasted the entire length of blade runner blues where he played it in real time and he's just, he's riffing. He's playing it in real time. And he's talking about what he thinks is happening as a synthesizer player. He not knowing anything about whatever Vangelis' process, process is. And it's interesting because he describes the uh, improvisation. He describes the pickups. He think he you know he might have recorded it on. It's interesting to hear it from someone else's point of view because again, Vangelis has been. Uh, if not lost to time, there's not there's not a a, a great uh, you know breadth of academic the kind of rigorous research that people like us and our own nerd class would appreciate about it. Yeah, right. So then we cut back to Deckard in his apartment, sat at the piano. One of those examples of the the sort of diegetic music in the film just bleeding perfectly into the score. And I was here that we have the infamous unicorn sequence. And I say infamous because it obviously wasn't in the theatrical cut, and it is one of, if not the biggest indicators, that Deckard is a replicant. So let's get it out of the way, guys. Let's discuss the whole is Deckard a replicant thing. Before we do that, can I just say right something <laughs> I I did read right about this old unicorn thing, right? Is when they were showing what was actually the um the work in pr- um, progress cut back in nineteen ninety one. Yeah, showing, the word print, you know, yeah. The word print, right? They invited Ridley Scott to a screening and they said he knew that he was busy because he was making Thelma and Louise at the time and he sat down to watch the film and he fell asleep. And at the end of the film, he started to come out and he said, about the, um, what, what do you think of the, um, the unicorn scene then? And it was, that wasn't in there. And he was the only person who seemed to think that the unicorn scene existed at the time. What? In, yeah, yeah. And, you know, because he slept through the whole film, he was sure that he had seen it. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's, you know, people claim these things that the unicorn sequence was something that was a bit of leftover footage from Legend, which was obviously shot and released in 85. No, they did film some. Yeah, they filmed uh, it. Apparently, they filmed it for. In, the, in 82, uh, yeah. Yeah, in 82. But. Uh, but I'm going to say that with regards to this whole question, I am with Frank Darabont because his analysis of it is that, and he focuses on the bit at the end where, you know, Gaff obviously throughout the film makes these little origami characters. He makes a little matchstick man. He makes a little kind of chicken. 
out of the cigarette paper. And then at the end, obviously after we've seen the unicorn dream sequence, and after Deckard comes back to his apartment to rescue Rachel, and after Gaff has said what he says to him, he leaves a little silver, you would imagine it's made out of maybe a, a chewing gum wrapper. Exactly, out of a yeah, chewing gum wrapper. A, a little unicorn. And, and the question would be, well, hang on. If we saw Deckard having this sort of awakened dream of a unicorn, how would Gaff know about that? But the way Darabont says it is that Gaff isn't saying to Deckard, I know you're a replicant, but instead he's saying, look, I think these things, these things will be a paid to hunt. They're as human as we are. So if you love this girl, then go for it. It's a, sto it's a story of a man who had lost his humanity, but in the love that he's found with this replicant, Rachel, that he's regained that humanity. Isn't that like far more interesting than him just being a replicant? I, I think I'm I'm happy with the answer, the question just to be to be open. I I know that Ridley Scott uh, he said from the very very early on that he thought that Deckard was a replicant, but he didn't seem to tell everybody. You know, Arisa Ford has always said no, he's not. Yeah. But I'm just happy with the the ambiguity. The, yeah, the ambiguity of it, the fact that we don't have to answer it. We don't have to answer it, and I've got no problem with anyone's theory on it. Like Stephen Saunders has, has said that he believes there's so much stuff in this film that points towards him being a replicant. I do agree that there is. But I question the fact that this is something that Ridley Scott, I believe, and I know he's the director, he's the one that is responsible for any direction this story takes itself, but I, I just don't think the whole concept of, Re of Deckard being a replicant, A, makes sense because replicants are outlawed on Earth, and B... Uh, and yet Rachel's there. But yeah, but she's part of the Terrell Corporation, isn't she? So effectively, we can imagine that they're made on Earth or designed and developed on Earth and then kind of shipped off off-world to these off-world colonies. But it, it just, to me, the whole story is far more interesting and makes far more sense if Deckard is human. But that's the beauty of Blade Runner is the ambiguity of it all and the fact that it's open to any number of different interpretations, none of which are right or wrong. Sorry, you know, I was, um, one of the things that um, David Peoples has said is that the idea of Deckard becoming a, being a replicant came from um, one of the voiceovers he had written early on, in which he, at the end of the film, he said that, uh, you know, Batty was a warrior cousin or something like that, right? And, um, you know, he refer references God, but he doesn't actually, you know, mention explicitly that he is talking about God. And when really Scott read it, he thought that he was implying that Deckard was a replicant. And he thought, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. That's a fantastic idea. And he went from it from there. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like I say, it, well, in if I do remember, in Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, it's indicated the possibility that Deckard is a replicant as well. Unfortunately, I wouldn't know because that book was so damn hard to read. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it, it to, to be honest, uh, I, I hate that suggestion. I've always, I, I, I omit it. I do... Um, Look in my brain, and you will see a Nadia Comaneci doing backflips with the, to the end of time. All the mental gymnastics it requires to omit this from it. Um, I don't. I don't like that possibility. That it leaves it open is great, but um, any any attempt to concretize it and it doesn't serve anything in the story. I don't necessarily know how it makes this thing work any better. Yeah. If any. If anything. Yeah, the whole point of uh, Roy Batty is the the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Mm -hmm. He honestly knows things that we couldn't possibly know, and he can behave and he can put his head through a plate glass wall and run faster than a, a bullet out of a uh, you know a high ballistic weapon. And you know the thing is, Deckard can't do any of those things. Deckard gets drunk. Deckard gets the shit beat out of him. Deckard bleeds, unless he's a new version of. Um, 
you know, a Nexus 7 or a Nexus 12 or a Nexus 15 or a T1000 or something like that, where, you know, ironically, you make these replicants better by downgrading them, by making them more human and more fallible along the way. I don't necessarily see what it is, the story. And I mean, you know, to tip our hands to whatever future discussions might come of this, why Blade Runner 2049 decided that that was going to be the entire aspect of it. That was the mystery that underlined any future exploration or interpolation of Blade Runner was going to be looking into replicants humanity, which I feel like we litigated here already. It doesn't add anything because we have a fairly good superficial run over, you know, human versus replicant, and clearly replicant wins. And the only thing that prevents us from being exterminated is the fact that they only live for four years. Yeah. And that works just fine for me as the motivation. Yeah. No, that's perfectly put, Bill. Yeah, I, I think that if people say it's a question that you don't need answered, I just think it's a question that you don't even need to ask in the first place. Yeah. And yet, here we are. Yeah. 30, 40 years later and we're talking about it we're well, being forced to talk about it I, I say 30 years later because I don't think 30, this yes, was even yes. a question until the director's came. Director's cut came out in 92 Yes. Decker then he, he puts the, the photograph he got from Leon's apartment into the Esper analysis machine and it's at this point in the notes that I say Adam I'm relying on you here for an explanation unfortunately Adam <laughs> can't join us now let's try and get our heads around how this multi-dimensional photograph works because it's always kind of fried my brain because you can like it's a two-dimensional photograph but you can look around corners and you can look in the in a mirror and you can look around the corner in the mirror yeah you know it always reminds me do you remember that the opening shot in contact oh which yeah the mind-bending shot where yeah. Where she runs up the stairs and yeah. she goes through into the bathroom. And then and it's we all find out reflected. that it's a reflection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just that, isn't it? doesn't make any sense, but it looks but so I, cool. I can just, you know, here, I, I'm, I'm no Adam Rakoff. Uh, I will be the first to admit that amongst all uh, mortal men. But perhaps the explanation is that when photos are made, and these look like, you know, standard uh, Kodak print photos that are made in a lab because they have that same sort of fade to them it's a it's a gorgeous artifact yeah we, we don't we don't have that anymore the emulsion the way that the, you know the actual light affects the film and then the way the film is printed on paper and the way the ink spreads and all these things that are gone to uh, antiquity you know we have that in this movie so the ability to sort of look inside of that particular early 1980s style of a chemical emulsion and to look around corners, it's like, you know, my, again, my mental gymnastics, the Nadia Comaneci is doing backflips and forward rolls, saying that this stuff is imprinted somehow, to, you know, in, not interdimensionally, but sort of just like dimensionally, there's another aspect of XYZ axis printed on the film, yeah. which again, if you're looking at it flat, you get 2D, but somehow this Esper machine is able to interpolate another dimension out of it that's embedded. And so you might be able to say uh, any picture made in this, you could do the same process. You could look around corners, you could look in the mirrors. Um, but, but say that, you know, tell me that this isn't one of the in ingenious things that Blade Runner does in terms of its special effects landscape, in terms of its real wizardry. Um, you know, th there may have been a carbon freeze chamber in Empire Strikes Back, but this movie has the Esper device, which allows you to look around corners in photos, which is pretty goddamn cool. Yeah, yeah. So then from the photograph, Deckard pulls an image of Zora and then he heads downtown where his investigation leads him to Taffy Lewis's bar. But before that, there's that bit where he's talking to um, Abdul Ben Hassan and we see it behind behind glass. There was always that thing of uh, Harrison Ford's dialogue doesn't match with his lip sync because it was obviously, it was ADR'd. And then in the final cut, they were 
trying to work out a way to get that to work. So they actually got Ben Ford in, Harrison Ford's son, who was, at the time, 40 years old, which is the same age that Ford was when he made Blade Runner. And they actually used footage of his mouth talking with these lines of dialogue with a, with a, an artificial scar, Ford's famous chin scar, put on as well. And then they overlaid that footage onto the original Blade Runner footage and made made it all sync up in the final wow. cut. Wow, amazing. And there's also another bit before that. Do you know when the lady's looking at the um, the snake scale? They actually went in and changed that as well because when she's, her dialogue that we can hear because we're, we're looking at footage of what she's seen under the microscope and she's reading out the serial number of the snake scale, it never matched up. So they went back in and they altered the image to make the serial number match up with what she's saying. So every little detail, every little place where they felt they should correct things, they did. I don't know if you know this as well, but when she's looking at that um, microscopic image, it's actually a marijuana. Wow. That is cool. So then when Deckard gets to Tappy Lewis's bar, first off, he, he calls uh, Rachel on the vid phone and she seems to brush him off. Uh, when he invites her downtown. And then Miss Salome is announced on screen and we cut backstage after the, the, the Snake Charmer act, which apparently was, was storyboarded and you know they, they did a bit of preliminary footage of it, but it was never something that was actually made into the final film. And then he goes backstage to confront Zora, but he, he puts on this act and he introduces himself as being from uh, the American Federation of Variety Artists. Uh, actually, I'm from the Confidential Committee on Moral Abuses. And I just love the fact that he, he just puts on this ridiculous voice and this ridiculous act and it's, it kind of breaks us out of this sort of dull, somber decker that we've seen. It's very much like um, Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he yeah. goes into the into, into the shop. Yeah. The bookshop, yeah. Or the, uh, you know, we're okay here. How are you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. There it is. I, I love the way that he puts on the stutter almost when he's, he's, he's quoting this made-up legislation. You know, obviously she's onto him and then she hits him with a wicked blow to the throat and then tries to garrote him with his tie before other dancers come in and, and, and then she runs off. And then we have... What is for me one of the greatest catamount foot chases I think I've ever seen in a film. And <laughs> one thing that has stuck with me most of my adult life, right, is the you know the computerized voice on the street crossing. Cross now, cross now, cross <laughs> yeah. now. Don't walk, don't walk. <laughs> right, every time right, I'm, I'm crossing the road and I'm, I'm at a street crossing. I always hear that voice in my head. Pretty much the same as every time I'm walking through a hospital corridor, I always hear the T-1000 music from T2 every time. And this is the same with, with, with the street crossing thing. By the way, do you know what, uh, when at the beginning you're watching the sort of digital dossiers on the replicants, do you know what it says Zora's specialty is, right? Like almost the reason for her to exist was political assassination. Wow. She was not... She wasn't brawny, she wasn't burly. What she was was lithe, feminine, and she had the ability to run a garage. Everything she does to Harrison Ford is the, you know, essential. The reason why she was created was to assassinate people in quiet. Um, you know, and, you know, Le Leon was a tank. You know, Batty yeah. is a football player. Pris is a gymnast. You know, all these, they have different primary specialties, but Zora actually shows, you know, in trying to kill him with a necktie, it's exactly what they were presaged that she would do in the little screen up front. Yeah. 
and, and you know that scene is it's the way that when he does eventually catch up with her and he delivers that line move get out of the way and before opening fire and it, there's nothing particularly unique about that line but I don't know it just it's another part of that perfect melding of dialogue with the sound effects and the score and the ambience of Blade Runner and as he's shooting Zora and it goes to slow motion as she's running through the panes of glass and again the score is just perfectly somber and then you also you've got overlaid on top and it goes back to that thing about the sound effects and the sound design working so well with the score you've got a heartbeat overlaid which slowly comes to a stop as Deckard approaches her and she dies and then you know, she, the other cops come and they flip her over onto her, onto her back and that image of Ford looking almost pained as, as the fake shop window display snow falls on him with the, the, the neon shop lighting in the background it's just another perfect image I do like the way that they, when they split, they, they tip her over. She's almost frozen. She's yeah. not, yeah, not loose like a north. Yeah, already, yeah. Yeah. already, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. Do you yeah. guys have a problem with, you know, the thing Joanna Cassidy talks about this on uh, Dangerous Days, the idea that she says the, um, you know, the, the wig apparently was below her specifications. I never noticed that before. I bought that entirely. I'm, I'm wig blind with these things. So I never, it never choked in my brain that that was supposed to be Zora just because it was an out-of-the-box wig. They didn't get a custom-made wig that looked exactly like the one that Joanna Cassie was wearing. Yeah, but, you know, look at the trouble they made. They went to then to correct that for the final cut. Right. Because Dangerous Days was actually filmed. This is the this is the bit that threw me. The Dangerous Days documentary was filmed in early 2007. It was during the shooting of that. It was one of the outtakes where they suggested to her that they go back and change it. She said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll come back. And then, later on that year, they got her back they filmed her on a green screen stage. They did her up. They put the, 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 the facial tattoo back on her to look like she did 30 or 25 years ago or whatever it was in 2007. Uh, I can't do the math. So would that have been 25 years? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they got her to look like she did 25 years ago. Okay. Filmed it all and then inserted this newly shot footage. They, they removed the head of the original stunt actress playing Zora as she's running through the glass. And then they digitally put Joanna Cassidy's head back on and it does work. There you go. Okay. Then Gaff then once again tells Deckard that Brian wants to speak to him. And then he's also told that as well as the other replicants which are still running around, which are Pris, Batty and, and Leon, that he's also got a fourth one to retire, which is Rachel. And then 
he's confronted by Leon. Leon, how old am I? I don't know. My birthday is April 10, 2017. How long do I live? Four years. More than you. Painful living fear, isn't it? Nothing is worse than having an itch you can never scratch. Oh, I agree. Wake up. Time to die. Rachel was damn lucky that that shot went through Leon's head and didn't go into Deckard's as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that gun, is that's a powerful gun. It's a great, uh, you know, that explosion when Leon's head opens up, though. Really, really well done. All done in camera. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it looks, you know, like for a minute, it's it's like that scene in, in Godfather, you know, when uh, Sterling Hayden gets shot in the neck and then shot in the forehead, and he's still sort of... There's, there's just a couple of seconds of him kind of like gesturing as his brain is shutting down. It's a, a lot of this weird mixture between makeup prosthetics and a performance synthesizing, like, what does death from a gunshot look like? I love shit like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> little interesting little side note. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I'll probably cut this all out, but it's on my phone somewhere, but I've got a photograph of my son a few years back stood in the kitchen with an absolutely perfect replica of... Deckard's gun, which Jim Cottle brought to my house that day. He he bought it online and it somehow came through customs and in this beautiful box that it came in, you had this gun, which was made out of metal and all the other materials that the you know the plastics and stuff and, and it had the same light up feature with the three red lights. But it also came with five fake bullets, again all metal, <laughs> right? Which yeah. went into and for a revolver to have five uh, chambers instead of six is, is quite unusual. I, I was amazed. I said, Jim, how the hell did that come through customs? This is not that long ago. This is within the last five years. And yeah, he was like, yeah, I don't understand how just even the, he said, even the, per- the the company that he bought it off said, it's highly likely that these bullets are not going to come to you. <laughs> They're going to be seized. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, and Bill, just to remind you, right, I couldn't even sell a fucking Megatron toy on eBay without I, that getting binned. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, uh, a plastic, plastic toy with clear seams, as clearly a Transformer yeah. did not make it through American customs. Yeah, Jim Cottle brings in the goddamn hand cannon. I know. <laughs> Crazy. Jim, Jim Cottle gets a hockey mask and a machete, and he just gets into the country, whatever <laughs> the hell he wants. All right, where are we? When then Rachel and Deck are back in his apartment, and he takes a drink of whatever alcohol is in that glass, and this is something that you made a gif of earlier in the week isn't it bill spoiler alert yeah, yeah. spoiler alert for something that's happened in the past <laughs> it's the way that the <laughs> way that the blood from his mouth mixes back into that liquid it's just another one of those little details i just love and it's the same when he's washing his face in the sink and, and all the blood is coming out as he's checking for loose teeth and then he falls asleep as rachel is asking him if he's ever taken the, the test himself which is another kind of thing of well, why would he have to take the test but 
know, we've already discussed that. And then we have one of Van Gallis's most beautiful piece of music, the love theme. And again, Rachel playing the piano perfectly blends in with the score. Now, the love scene. Now, a certain film podcast that I'm not going to name, when they covered Blade Runner in an episode, they called the film out for the scene where Deckard forces himself on what they said was an emotionally and sexually naive Rachel as that scene being problematic. Now, what do you guys think of that scene? Because if Deckard is a replicant, it isn't that much of a problem. <laughs> but if, he, if he's human, yeah. Well, it, it's it's romantic sexual abuse, isn't it? <sighs> You know, that's that's what it is. I must remind you, Steve, I, it is 2022. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's this thing where, again, talk about the uh, either inflation or deflation like currency in terms of how people can act towards each other on film. Whereas if this was Bogey doing this to Bacall back in uh, 38 or 41 or 45, it would feel a lot different. And somehow, uh, you know, don't quote me on this and don't, don't cancel me on this. I don't know. I mean, somehow... Ford and Ridley Scott and Sean Young as the consenting actors kind of get away with it because they're, they're, in some ways they're saying, this is the atmosphere we're going for. We clearly understand that this is an idea of consent, you know, where he says to her in so many ways, tell me that you want me to do this in so many words. You know, I mean, it works in the confines of the movie just because it is sort of this airless atmosphere that was transported from the days of a prime film noir to me. And they actually really cut back on it because as originally filmed, that seems a lot more raunchy. There was more nudity in it. and I was amazed. To, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of dangerous days. I, was like, I didn't realize Sean Young kind of almost went full frontal for that scene. It's crazy. Yeah. So then back at JF's, Pris, uh, she's giving herself a, bit, a pretty bizarre makeover. And then JF tells Pris that he's only 25, but he looks much older because he's got Methuselah syndrome. And and then a distraught Batty arrives because obviously Leon's now been killed and Pris and Batty have the same problem as JF accelerated decrepitude as Pris puts it and then JF leads them or points them towards Elden Terrell for possible answers as to how they can solve the problem of their shortened lifespan and then you've got that following shot of the Troll Corporation building that is it's got to be one of the best model shots I think I've ever seen. You know, th this model was, it was a couple of feet high, a couple of feet wide, and at, at one point they actually burnt it down just as they were coming to the end of shooting it. Because Not of, intentionally, of, but but it happened. Because yeah, of all of the um, all of the lights inside, coupled with the, the, you know, the smoke and the gases and stuff that were building up in the, in the, the, the shooting studio, which is, yeah, just burst into flames. Now, <laughs> this is another one of those things that kind of bleeds into real life with me, is any time, I'm having any sort of late night correspondence with people. And I'm like thinking to myself, they're up late. Usually it relates to John Armenio, I don't think he sleeps. <laughs> and I, I always quote that line, milk and cookies kept you awake, huh? <laughs> I always do. Anytime, right? I always think of that anytime I think, Christ, they should be in bed now. And then you've got a confrontation between Batty and Terrell. It has to feature some of the best dialogue in a film where dialogue almost plays second fiddle to you know, other aspects such as mood and visuals. But that, that line, I want more life fucker, which was, in my opinion, quite rightly changed to I want more life father in the final cut. Well, apparently, as they were filming it, they did both. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, was, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. dubbed over. It was it was a, a different take. Yeah, and yeah. I want more life father, actually. It's got more nuance. It it's does, got, yeah. yeah. But then you've got, like, Terrell, where... After the, the technical thing where he says, you know, we EMS recombination, all of that nonsense, all the stuff which Terrell knows isn't going to work. It's built into their DNA. They are going to die after four years. And he said, the light that burns twice as bright, bright burns half as long and you have burned oh so very brightly, Roy. Revel in your time. 
and it, it ah, it's that scene and it's the build up and it's that kiss that Batty gives him before he presses his thumbs into his eyes and effectively crushes his skull is just so discomforting it's like Steve that bit where Salotto puts his hand on Luca Brasi Luca Brasi on, on Luca Brasi's hand yeah. just before he stabs a knife into it it's yeah. just that unsettling bit of physicality that just just adds another little sort of creepy element to it but uh, this all of this is academic you were made as well as we could make you but not to last the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you have burned so very very brightly Roy look at you you're the prodigal son you're quite a prize I've done questionable things, also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven. Joe Turkle gets this uh, great opportunity to be just as enigmatic as he was in The Shining. Yeah. Where, you know, there's, you got a couple of directors here using this American actor. I mean, the guy, I think Joe Turkle is a Brooklyn-born New York native. And yet two of these things that he did that we remember for all of time are, you know, so devoid of nationality, so devoid of region. They exist outside of space and time in a way that, you know, Rutger Hauer jetted from some moon and, and Joe Turkle came from some outside space. And the two of them meet in this weird limbic area to do weird, you know, Elon Musk type fuck up, you know, creator and and the monster that he created who has this humanity uh, poking through it's kind of an amazing fusion yeah and the fact that we never see what happens to jf before that shot of batty in the elevator struggling to kind of the way i see it is he's struggling to process the emotions following what he's just done although bryant then tells deckard that jf was also found dead and then as originally conceived but never shot was the fact that the terrell that we see is himself a replicant and after killing him Batty then goes up several more floors and finds the body of the real terrell in some sort of modern sarcophagus yeah, that that would have lost something. I mean, it it wouldn't have landed. It meant nothing to us, no. honestly. What's the point of not having this guy die? Exactly. Yeah, it's another kind of cool idea that may sound cool on paper, but doesn't service the story that this film is trying to tell. And then it's another line, like so many of the. And this is not a film famed for his dialogue, but it's a line that that cop says to Deckard after confirming his ID because he's he's parked kind of in that back street, and the, the cop in the spinner is kind of stop checking him or whatever. And he just says, have a better one, as he's flying off. It's just <laughs> a, it's an unusual sort of farewell that I've, I've never heard before, but it, it, it's one that's stuck with me, and I often say to people, but no one ever gets the reference, if I ever use it in real life. As is, <laughs> right? It's another one. Deckard's line when Pris hangs up on him on the vid phone, and he says, that's no way to treat a friend. 
because obviously he's, <laughs> he's identified him. It's, it's Eddie, an old, old friend of JF, and then she just hangs up. And, well, that's no way to treat a friend. Yeah, I've, I've been used to know that one too, and no one ever gets that one either. And at the point then where Deckard goes to the Bradbury building, where pretty much the rest of the film plays out, and it, it, at this point there's 28 minutes of the film left. So it's a 28 minute long finale. You know, the production design here with. <laughs> I'm not being funny. <laughs> the, the amount of water that's pouring down the walls in this building. It, 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 how the hell, right, does JF get any electrics to work? It's not fit for human purpose, but. <laughs> he does say that nobody lives there. <laughs> it just looks so cool, doesn't it? There's a housing crisis in the city and nobody lives uh, there. Know, yeah. You know what? Yeah. I thought I thought that the Bradbury building. I honestly thought the Bradbury building was uninhabited. I thought it was a piece of like our urban archaeology, like refuse that was parked in the center of Los Angeles, the city. I didn't realize that. Oh no! Every single night they came in there yeah. for something like thirty nights in a row and rebuilt this thing where they made it look completely, you know, disreputable, uninhabited, trash filled, and they would clean it up in terms for every. In time for everyone to go back to their office jobs in the morning. That is an insane, punishing production schedule. Yeah, yeah. And then Deckard confronts Press. They have that fight. That famous backflip was actually done by a man. It looked, you know, yeah. It looks like a man as well, I have to say. Yeah. The only thing is uh, chest hair, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Deckard obviously puts a, a couple of bullets in there, and then Batty comes into the building. And when he finds Press and he sort of touches her, gunshot wounds and he, and he kind of puts the you know the bloody fingers to his mouth and 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 he, just again him trying to process grief and 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 all that sort of stuff that's going on is just so well done at some point then during their confrontation after Deckard has fired on him he strips down to his underwear it's <laughs> amazing I, I never i don't understand it but i go with it exactly it, you don't ask why, but it just works. He then breaks two of Deckard's fingers, one for Zora, one for Press, before giving him his gun back. Because like he says, he says, not very sporting to open fire on an unarmed man. He then disarms him, but then gives him his gun back. But why not Why not one finger for Leon? I think he's being chivalrous. Le- Leon uh, okay. should have been able to sort Deckard out, shouldn't he? But, you know, obviously Rachel, right, okay. Rachel killed him, that's why. Fair enough. Yeah. Killed by one of his own. Yeah. We pretty much have then an extended cat and mouse chase which leads us up onto the roof. Then Deckard tries to jump onto an adjoining building and ends up hanging from the side of the building on a strut. Batty makes the jump easily and then... But before Deckard falls, have you, have you noticed the spit? He spits at him. I did yes. not notice that, He spits no. at him. He it's does. Like as if, it's like his one final act of contempt about the fact that, all right, you beat me, but fuck you. He spits at him. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. That could be the reason why he does save him, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's because he can see the defiance in him and these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, could yeah. be. And he respects that. Yeah. He respects the humanity, the fact that he was willing. He, he's going to live for a long time, and yet, if he's not a replicant, um, I, but he's going to live I, for a long time, and yet he's willing to give it up. I always read that you know the the idea of the act of mercy was the very last thing he could do to exhibit something else that he hadn't quite done as a yeah. living being. Humanity and. Yeah, humanity was almost like let's let me test this, and I'm in the last six seconds of my life, and so the one thing I haven't done is something noble, and uh, yeah, hu- you know, with with humanity, and so it's like, well, what a better time to do it now than in the rain while clutching this weird dove that I grabbed somewhere. Yeah, so let's try yeah. let's try this out right now. So the yeah, yeah he, he grabs Deckard's arm, pulls him up onto the roof before delivering what has been for me for a long time, maybe. My favourite scene in any film, which is the Tears in the Rain monologue. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. wonderful. 
I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. But but you know the fact that the that this guy you know riffed that on the set. I mean, you, again, you talk about a guy who's making his you know big splash into American filmmaking, and again, a non-native English speaker comes up with this bit of poetry. I know he did more of that on the set than was accepted in the final script, but that he got the last word on it is kind of amazing. Like, I mean, again, there, there's some idea of what the speech was, and it goes on a lot longer, and it's a lot less poetic. Uh, in a way, Rutger Howard did cut down the corners and sand a lot of the rough edges off and make something more, you know, superior. It's poetry, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And like I say, we don't exactly know what he's talking about um, because we're not supposed to. It's just he's experienced things that the normal, everyday person back on Earth won't. And it's just the fact that all of those experiences, all of those things that he's witnessed, all of those thoughts and feelings he's had and whatever, are just at the point he dies, are just going to evaporate. Well, do you remember what he tells Tyrell? He says, I've done things. Uh, in so many words, like, I've done things that you wouldn't be proud of. Questionable like things, he says. Yeah, he's trying to process this idea that morality, too, is, is bubbled up new. And it's like he killed people before he was understanding what the horror of violence and death yeah. was. Yeah. And so this is the same thing. It's like, well, I'm just beginning to grasp all the things that I've witnessed and done. And it's like, and it's all going to be gone before I have a chance. Anyone has a chance to, to process and deprogram whatever's been going on.
Yeah, he's also swinging, I think, back and forth. He's like a teenager, isn't he? That one minute he's really, really angry. You know, I think that's why he kills AF Sebastian. It's because the anger and he kills Tyrell. And the next minute he's feeling compassion. He's all over the place, he is. Yeah, he destroys the thing he loves and he loves the things he destroys. Exactly. And I've said that, you know, my favourite piece of music is that Blade Runner Blues bit with Deckard looking down over the city. And then my favourite scene is the tears in the rain. But I've got to say, my favourite shot is... After that, he dies. Gaff then arrives and he says, God, you've, you've done a man's job, sir. And it's that <laughs> shot of Gaff on the rooftop with the fans either side of him and the spinner in the background and all that rain. That might be my favorite shot in the film. I, I love I love the it's arch language to say you've done a man's job because it's like I know friends who will say that to me today if I go up and, you know, if I buy a round. I'll come back with the, with the with the pints, and they'll say you've done a man's job, sir. It's like that is an all, that's an all purpose. Do you, do you know the bit that's really going to mess up yours and my sort of opinion and verdict on whether or not he's a replicant? Okay, what's that? As originally shot is when he says the line "You've done a man's job, sir." That was then cut because the actual complete line is something along the lines of, "But are you, are you can you be sure that you're really a man?" Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I hear it's in, it's in dangerous days. Yeah, I hate yeah, that. It's like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> don't spoil <laughs> it for me. Don't, don't, just don't put more fuel on the fire. Yeah. There's a great um, line, though, where he says straight after, you know, being about um, oh, Rachel. Yeah. It's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's poetry, isn't it? Deckard, you know, he then goes back to his apartment. He finds Rachel asleep, although at first he thinks she too might have expired. Thankfully, she's alive. They leave, and then as they're getting in the elevator, you know, he finds another one of Gaff's little origami pieces. Obviously being a suggestion, he too is a replicant, but then Deckard kind of gives that wry smile as we hear Gaff's last line repeated, and then they get into the elevator, and we're done. And definitely, no outtakes from The Shining, coupled with footage of those two up in Big Bear, in a spinner, driving around. Oh, that opening, that old, you know, from the original uh, theatrical cut when they drive in through... The woods. I mean, all the way through, we've been te- we've been told that you know animals don't exist anymore. That uh, you know they're they extinct feature, and yeah. polluted. And yeah. then they go through this beautiful forest scene where obviously there's going to be animals there. There's going to be bugs. There's going to be lots of other things there. Oh, it makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense, does it? No. No. So let's talk about the film's release and reaction because audience reaction upon that initial release on June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two, was mixed. But there were many who would never forget seeing the film for the first time. And you know reviews. They were mixed, it opened big, but quickly those numbers dipped and really sort of tapered off. Even, right, one of the reviews. He seems more concerned with creating his film worlds than populating them with plausible characters. And that's the trouble this time. Blade Runner is stunningly interesting visual achievement, but a failure as a story. That was Roger Ebert. I can see where he's coming from. Yeah, Yeah. you know. Look, Blade Runner is a, it's a film that I love. Yeah. And if you read my piece on Film 89 about Blade Runner, which was written many years ago, uh, that was put on the website when we started in 2017, I will describe my experience of re-watching that film in 2015 on the big screen with a friend of mine who'd never seen it before. And watching that film with someone who'd never seen it, but had, had so much... And this, this is a, a guy who's older than me, huge film fan, but Blade Runner was just one of those films that just always managed to elude him. And seeing him and his reaction to that film... And, and him be almost perplexed and puzzled by it because it wasn't the theatrical cut with this exposition-heavy voiceover. It was the final cut. Kind of experiencing him see that film and then the, him then trying to impress on me his verdict, uh, verdict of it afterwards. I was just like, 
it was the same with me. It just wasn't a film that I enjoyed on first, second, third, fourth, or even fifth viewing. It took me a long time to get into and appreciate Blade Runner. And I can fully understand people who don't like it. Yeah, but at the same time, I know that from the very beginning, there was um, people who it it impacted them immediately. And in um, if I, if you don't mind me reading something, right, this is from the book uh, Future Noir, right, The Making. And there's a letter here, right, where somebody said about how Blade Runner will no doubt end up as a cult movie. It's um, one error was to present too much to the average viewer. I'm not the only one in the town who saw the movie six times and noticed new things each time. Mm. And this is a letter to People magazine in August twenty uh, August the 22nd, 1982. So yeah. this is when he was first out, and they were yeah, and people it was connecting with people two months yeah yeah, and yet by then look, they'd already seen it six times. But I mean, look, there have to be some movies that are lost in the moment they were you know they're released. This is this is one of my favorites of all time. I mean, not just because I mean, or maybe just because it's like I don't have the I have myopia about 1982 being a year in film and and the kind of uh, optical science fiction films with the tones and whatnot that I saw when I was a young person and how they've grown on me over the years. But I mean. This is one of those movies where it is clearly an all-timer. This is a banger that will last for all of the decades. And it's like, I understand some of this stuff is lost when it comes out. 82 is a busy year. As you know, as Film 89 has not been derelict in covering all of the all the big drops in 82. Uh, you know, the 80, 80 through 84 was like a heady time in the film in the film business of creating the genres that we know and love today. Some things have to be lost along the way. I get that some people will watch this and have the same quizzical effect as when they watch uh, the shuttlecraft go around the Enterprise and Star Trek, the motion picture. I think all of those people are incorrect. I think they're wholly wrong. Uh, that doesn't make them, you know, they're not going to listen to my opinion but I mean, this movie lasts the test of time. It becomes an all-timer. It stands on its own, uh, you know, two feet. Doesn't need to argue for anything or justify its own existence because it is. It is. It, you know, I keep saying this. It's an insua generis piece of art. You know, and this is some of the finest that 1982 had to offer in a crowded field of other mm. films that I think are just, you know, superior movies for that year. I think 1982 was um, a year when people were looking for other things, though, because, you know, you had E.T., the sentimentality of E.T., you had the, you know, the American preterism of uh, Rambo, First Blood. I mean, you had all these things which were trying to make people feel better about themselves. Yeah. And Blade Runner does not do that. Right, you, you've just you mentioned it, there, Steve. You said it. Right, look. And Bill, you say about all the other films that came out that year. Look, Blade Runner was released the same day as John Carpenter's The Thing. Though both films failed and are seen to have been caught in the wake of the huge success of E.T. Now, The Thing, that was subject of the, you know, the, the third episode that we ever did. And here we are going all in on Blade Runner. But we've yet to cover E.T. And look, I love E.T. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I was going to say, you know? where's E.T. in all this? Exactly. I, I love E.T. I think E.T. Is, is an absolute masterpiece. But I just I think whatever the landscape was at the time, people just weren't in the mood in the middle of summer of 1982 to have two films that were they're not upbeat. Although you could argue that the you know the, the central message and the core of certainly Blade Runner is positive. Certainly the thing isn't. The thing is one of the most apocalyptic doom and gloom films with such a beautifully ambiguous ending. But yeah. Middle of summer eighty two, people wanted they wanted the Wrath of Khan, they wanted E.T., they wanted Tron. It wasn't Rocky Three was um, eighty two as Rocky well. Rocky Three was eighty two, my favorite yeah, Rocky film. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what yeah. they say is that you know the seventies don't stop being the seventies until 
82 or 83. You know, yeah. like it, it, there's no clear like, oh, here's the turn of the decade and we're going to do this thing now. And so like those two movies in particular are, I would say not guilty because they are, in fact, uh, you know, very successfully, uh, beautifully part of the 70s moment. And just because they were released in the 80s, the juxtaposition of what Spielberg did with E.T. compared to what Carpenter did with The Thing and what Ridley Scott does with this. I mean, these these two movies, The Thing and, uh, you know, they're using 80s era technology to limb out 70s era themes and tone. And that's why they are neither fish nor fowl. And perhaps the market left them, uh, which, you know, like, again, if you're going to do an ET episode, count me in because I, you know, can sit here and talk until I'm blue in the face in this microphone. I got a lot of good things to say about ET. It's formative beyond formative. You know, there's just, there's no question about that. Oh yeah. It's just one of those things that people rightly or wrongly cited that film as being responsible for the failure of these two films much like look at um look at friedkin's sorcerer 1977 that film yeah. came out two weeks later star wars came out no one was interested in this film with an ambiguous title that seemed to imply some sort of strange fantasy film which it certainly wasn't and one of the greatest films of the 70s was lost in this you know, explosion of Lucas's film. It's the same with E.T. seeing as being responsible for the, the, the failure of these two films. But fortunately for both The Thing and Blade Runner, they'd slowly but surely gain not just cult status, but genuine recognition as two of the all-time greats. Home video obviously being of huge benefit to the resurgence in popularity of Blade Runner. I don't think you can blame like films like E.T. or Star Wars for Sorcerer. I mean, um, I think the marketing and the, for Sorcerer was all over the place. The title, you know, from the yeah. maker of um, The Exorcist and you've got a film called Sorcerer. Nobody's going to be expected to be, a, you know, a remake of Wages of Fear. Well, you know, Wages of Fear was such a cool title. The why didn't yeah, you just I know. call the remake Wages of Fear? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, yeah, you, you know, Steve, it's right. You can't, you know, distro is a different aspect of filmmaking than the act of creation. You know, the, the it's like, you know, to just look at one film next to another as just pure seminal art forms, it, it is to ignore uh, exhibition and distribution. And again, yeah, it's like exactly. it's not it's not fair. But, you know, like how many people see it and like how do they see it? And uh, like that winds up being something that taints the art form, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it is a crowded marketplace as well. And people choose what they want to see so you know in that year you had an officer and gentleman which is a huge hit again completely different to um blade runner you know et is a wonderful movie there's no doubt about it i think it says something the fact that we don't talk about it enough these days than we than we perhaps should and you know critically people don't talk about it as much as they should and and even the filmmakers you know spielberg doesn't mention it as much i think as he should but when you look at the other films they were all they all had perhaps this uplift about them you know when people were feeling quite confident and happy about themselves hey steve steve yeah. you sit me down right and you you put et on oh I cried my eyes out. at the at the point right where <laughs> that where that ship is flying off and oh stop uh, it stop right, killing it williams is music <clears throat> at that point if you pause that film and say Sky was the greatest film ever made. It's <laughs> ET. It's ET. Easily. Well, I, I wouldn't be able to answer you because I would just have to be exactly. off the room because I'd be crying too much. Spielberg and John Williams, they knew what they were doing at the time. They, and they, they, did, yeah. they had us by our emotional private bits and they were just yeah. wringing every bit of whatever emotion out of us. Whereas these two films, certainly Blade Runner, it's, in, it, it is, it's got that degree of impenetrability to it for a mainstream audience. It's more of an intellectual film than it, yes. Whereas the thing I don't think is, but 
both films I think fail for different reasons but you know like I say both of them are now quite rightly regarded as absolute masterpieces but I think more than anything maybe more than any other film of his kind Blade Runner would become influential like few other films have, have, have ever been Akira Seven, The Matrix, that's just three films off the top of my head, countless science fiction films and, yeah. and TV shows that follow music element. videos, video games, comic books, they all owe a debt to Ridley Scott's film, you know, his, his masterpiece. If you want to go back through Scott's uh, repertoire, look at all his films, you know, you see the things that can go wrong with Ridley Scott films are they're in every single one of his movies. But in particular, you will look at Blade Runner and see all those things working. And again, this is a younger man. I want to say he's in his mid to late 30s by this point. He comes out of a whole ton of advertising work that he did in London. And, you know, he, he did Alien before this. He did The Duelists. And so he was off to a good start in terms of being a filmmaker. But you see all the tendencies that do sink him, that do torpedo his movies. It's just that it's, it's you know, no one can get every single detail correct. And somehow some of these filmmakers managed to nail all the details and to make an unsinkable masterpiece. But again, all the, the blueprints for what will flunk future films are all embedded in this, in fact. Yeah. Any more final thoughts on this film? I would say that, you know, we've, we've talked quite a lot of times and we mentioned the term flawless film, perfect films. Um, you know, when we talk about um, Jaws, when we talk about The Godfather and things like that, they are perfect films. I don't think Blade Runner is a perfect film. However, it's not hindered by that at all. It's a really, really interesting film. And I think that's what, what elevates it, I think. I don't think it was a perfect film, but... Over the years, with a film shouldn't take this long to be tweaked and and tailored with and have the little flaws kind of ironed out of it. But I think that was a whole part of the resurgence in the popularity and the love for Blade Runner and the fact that it found a new audience that it didn't find on its theatrical release is the fact that I didn't it, think they knew, they didn't know what they had. At the no, time. I, don't, I don't. I don't think they you know they they knew what they had which is understandable. I, I, I can fully understand that. But given the film that I just watched, The Final Cut, cringe as I, as, as I say what I'm about to say because it sounds so fucking pretentious and I'm just, as you know, Stephen, Bill, I'm, I'm not I'm not one of those sort of pretentious film types. But Blade Runner isn't a film that I watch anymore. It's, it's a film that I experience and I just let it wash over me. And from that point of view and the fact that it's just unlike any other film in that regard, I do actually think that it is a perfect film and the final cut as it is now for me it just is perfect it's a masterpiece and i love alien you know as, as much as any other film i think it's just wonderful and i wouldn't like to pick between these two but i do think that one of these two films is scott's masterpiece i think he's done a lot of very very good films they may be not masterpieces but i think you know from everything from you know, i'm a big fan of black rain I know a lot of people don't like that film. I am. I do. I mean, and Thelma and Louise and uh, Gladiator and uh, White American... Squall, Steve. White Squall. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just and, watched uh, that recently. Yeah, that's um, Jeff Bridges, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that for a long, long time. You know, but uh, American Gangster is another one I really, really. Oh, like. yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But I really do think that this is up there with the likes of Star Wars and Citizen Kane, as in like most influential and most important. 
I was going to say, in terms of my my final thought on this movie, if you think about, again, if you watch, you get a chance, everybody gets a chance to watch Dangerous Days. It's worth it. It's three hours. Um, it, is a, it is a DVD extra. It's available on iTunes, which is how I watched it. It's really not available in any other venue unless you buy physical media. Yeah. But I mean, if you care enough to sit through it, you will get a uh, a curbside view of what, what it was like to make this movie that, you know, and they talk to every single person imaginable. And, you know, what you really get is how many billions of points of failure, potential failure that were introduced in this project. Everything that could go wrong was myriad in terms of money, in terms of craft, in terms of attitude, in terms of tone, in terms of vision. Everything was against this film from working. Nothing was easy about it. It took too much time. It cost too much money. Everyone hated working on it. They understood that the ardor you know, that that term, A-R-D-O-R, you know, it is personified by the effort of making this film. The, the way people suffered through coughing through the smoke and getting wet in the rain. And then you, you realize it all comes together and it flattens out and smooths and it becomes this wonderful environment that we all live in. We don't see any of the gaps, the holes, the synthesis, all the dyspepsia and the ire that anyone working on this film, the anger that the, 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 the people who, you know, the money men were putting into this, where they actually fired Ridley Scott like after the movie was done just to make a theoretical statement. You know, you watch all of these things today and you say to yourself, oh, you know, and Denny Villeneuve made a sequel with, with 50,000 times the ease that these guys had to make it and with a, it was a fraction as good, even though it was a completely competent and a visionary creator in our current day, with all the all the CGI available and all the money in the world, and uh, Roger Deakins and every single and it, it is not as good as this movie with its 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 piecemeal, kludged, you know, screwed together success of all the things that could go wrong and it somehow went right. And that's why, you know, this this is, you know, a unicorn. I mean, not even so much the image of the unicorn inside the movie, but just the idea that efforts don't come together. They don't coalesce where the whole exceeds the sum of its parts. But with Blade Runner, it does. And it tells you why we almost can't make these anymore, no matter how much money and how much access to, to you know, graphics and, and CGI and time you have today. You cannot recreate whatever they had on the set of this thing back in the day. I think to, um, as a metaphor to sum up what you just said, uh, Bill, it was held together by the chewing gum that became that the wrapper became the um, unicorn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Very nice. Very yeah. nice. And, you know, I know I know, people are listening to this now. They might be thinking, well, is this a complete Blade Runner episode if you haven't covered the sequel? And for me personally, there's a conscious reason that I've not brought, that, brought the sequel up. is because in prep for this episode, I actually went back and I read, uh, if you go on filmmeeting.co.uk, typing Blade Runner 2049 into the search bar, my, my 2017 review of that film, which was written you know, a few days before the general release. I wouldn't change a word of that. I was actually quite surprised with how much I wrote about the film. My, my opinion on it has not changed, and the things I really appreciate about the film still stand, and the things I don't like about the film still stand. I never expected or wanted or needed a f- sequel to Blade Runner, and I think given the fact that I always had very low expectations of any follow-up to Ridley Scott's film, I think film that we did get fair play to Denis Villeneuve he deserves a pat on the back because it's a hell of a lot better than it ever really should have been but it's not the original and for me it's a faithful and respectable sequel to it but can I give you my um, sales pitch for a sequel which was never going to be made but this is what I wanted go on right I what I thought was it would start off off world 
right? Yeah. And there would be an accident and some people would save, um, you know, some um, their fellow colleagues. And uh, we focus on, say, two or three people and they start questioning how come we can do these things but other people can't. How come we can go into yeah. space without a helmet and the other people need helmets? And they start to question themselves. And then they start, um, you know, they, they, they meet somebody who tells them they are replicants and the implications of that. And then they, there's this, like, an underground railroad movement who helps them to try to escape yeah. and, you know, to get to Earth. That's what I would want to have seen in the sequel. As, as Bill said, they chose to make a sequel off the back of an idea that was there in the in the original film and not blatantly apparent in the original version, but later did become apparent in the subsequent director's cuts and final cut. But like I say, I've got no issue with the film. You know, I think I give it a quite uh, generous score overall. But yeah, it's. But what, Sky? Why is the sequel dated more than the original is? And this is the part I'm trying to wrap my head around. In that, in some ways, 2049 is more uh it suffers from more cancers from the year it was released than the original does from being in 1982 with all the vagaries of what a 1982 film would be like in terms of you know your your optical effects your production uh the, you know money being you know the 1970s coming to an end and the idea that profligate budgets were no longer in vogue and yet somehow the sequel suffers from Jared Leto casting and it suffers from all these various, you know, protosorial um, knob turns. And along the, the other way. thing that grips me most about it, it with hindsight, it, as much as I fucking hate Jared Leto in that film, is the, the, the sort of densely populated lower down side of the city, as in the street level. It's not conveyed in this film. Yeah. If, if anything, you know, the LA of 2049 is sparse. And if, yeah, if that's because people have moved off world, then fine, that makes sense. But it, that part of it doesn't tie in. With, and that's what uh, is interesting, I think. Yeah, it? it's not as interesting as the, the hustle and bustle and overcrowded choking landscape that we had in the original. I think the obverse of the Jared Little coin is that you you hire uh, Brian Gosling, who, again, was an actor who was very much in vogue for that kind of whisper acting that, you know, you don't like. And I like Gosling if he can do the job correctly. But again, think people thinking on an executive level protosorial level that oh jared leto is the ideal villain for this sort of thing and that ryan gosling is the ideal hero for this sort of thing when i'm not entirely sure either of those things is 100 true but those are the two factors that led that to being green light green lighted along with harrison ford's part participation but it, th those in some ways are the roots of its own destruction to me yeah there we have it, uh, guys, girls, and replicants. That was our rundown of Blade Runner in the year of its 40th anniversary. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Bill, uh, where can people find you on social media if they want to hit you up to chat? I am on Twitter, at William Scurry, and my podcast is called I Don't Get It. And we are at Noah and Bill's show. If you enjoy listening to the sound of my voice, we don't necessarily talk about movies. We talk about popular culture as it derives from the uh, English language world. Uh, so you will see us uh, on Twitter or on the, the Facebooks or wherever. But I don't get it. Wherever fine podcasts are sold. And have you got any other secret projects in the lineup? I do. I have a number of secret projects coming up. I have a couple of essays that I got to drop in my American Caesar Salad series. Uh, me and our old friend James Hancock did a big, uh, big move, a big heave over a, a couple of weekends ago in New York City. It's going to be a nice, fun project that we drop on that. And we're also we're going to Dublin, Ireland uh, soon to do a movie shot in Dublin episode. 
this is this is actually not a raw wheel product. We are merely hired hands being brought on me and Hancock for that guy Robert O'Mara. Um, so they're going to shoot and edit the whole thing, but we are going to be on camera talent for this project. Oh, so good. look out for that. Great, because I yeah, love Robert. I think Robert's absolutely he's just brilliant. He's he is, and it's like watch. again. This is just one of those things where it's like, wow, you know, Twitter again brings really cool people yeah. together. There's no way I would have met if, if in real life, you know. Steve, where can people reach you if they want to correct you that Blade Runner actually is a perfect film? <laughs> I, did, I, I I'm not saying it's a bad film. I love the film. I I adore the movie. I just um, you're I digging a that, hole. Just uh... no, no. I, I think that you know sometimes. Um, uh, yes, I, I I have no defense. <laughs> <laughs> just tell people where they can find you. Yeah, Twitter is the best place, and it's at Welsh Bluesman. Fantastic. So we'll be back soon with uh, more of this stuff that you all seem to like. But until then, stay safe, stay human, and if you're not human, then just stay classy. You've done a man's job, sir. I guess you're through, huh? Finished. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does?